I mean, yeah, what do I think about it? It's yeah. sad, of course. I mean, that's probably a, a hack, right? You, you hack the system. Mm. Yeah. Do you? Okay, so, and, and software patent, I mean, you can in some way understand. I mean, if you try to defend also patents, there is a good purpose behind them, I think, especially if you look at the you know, medical sector and if someone comes up with a great like virus or cure yeah. for something and they spend like billions of dollars developing it, if anyone could just copy that, no one could really do the research to properly develop a, a proper cure for, for some disease. So in that case, I think it's very valid that you have to do it. Would you agree on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's about the investment that you put into something, right? Mm. You, you you invest as a company into an invention or into a product or a use case or whatever, and a solution, <clears throat> and you want to use it as as an asset for the company. So you don't want that anybody can just take it and copy-paste it. Yeah, exactly. And then it's more than an asset, I would say. It's actually the only way to, to survive as a company because otherwise mm -hmm. people could copy it. Yeah. And that's sell it for a margin of the cost because they mm. don't have the research costs behind it that the original company did. So I think in that case, it's clear that the patent is like vital to be able to have the type of research that we that we want to have in companies as well, yeah. the type of industrial research. But <laughs> then when it comes to more software patents and patents on algorithms or on math, then there is a more of a gray zone. Exactly. And it's right? not black and white. It's also how you <clears throat> deal with a patent or what your what your approach is to protect it or to 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 sue other companies, I guess. Mm. But we are going into detail. Could you just tell us a little bit about the journey, the story, how it came, you know, how you mm -hmm. came into that, how you realized you wanted to go and you know, a little bit about the process. Yeah. So I was working uh, or I am working with a client and we have um developed um like a method and approach, like a technical solution to to save electricity cost for for an industrial um, factory. And uh, we have we have realized nobody else has done it before. Um, there's also not no academic research describing the solution. So we want to to protect this idea to to just be sure that nobody else can block us from from doing it by filing a patent. Essentially, um, so. Yeah, that was the idea. We have essentially the process is you you write down the idea in, in simple words. In our case, we had help from a uh, from a patent lawyer that helped us to formulate claims. So essentially, it's like rephrasing what your idea in in legal speak. It sounds kind of way more complicated than than you think it is, and I guess it has to be like that for because it's read by um, you know lawyers. Lawyers. <laughs> Um, I remember also some, some of my previous experience with that and, and um, we actually had some awesome patent engineers and I tried to just, they just had an interview with me and I tried to describe it from a technical point of view, you know, what the system, system did. And then they wrote up this kind of patent application, like 30, 40 pages or something. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even <clears throat> understand what they wrote. <laughs> yeah. I titled it didn't make sense to me. I, I didn't understand the content. They had beautiful like schematics and diagrams mm -hmm. of stuff, and I was, what is this? But it 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 was of course related to it. It's just that they were very skilled in how to generalize the idea to something that potentially can be, yeah, patented in some way. But it it I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings. I'm a bit subjective in this uh, area, <laughs> but. Uh, 
if we say that, yes, what do you think in general? Why would a company like the one you are working with now, uh, what's the value for that company to pursue patents? Well, I guess the, the risk is always that somebody else patents the same solution and right. sues you for, for doing it. Yeah. Uh, so in a way, it's like a, a game, like who comes first and, and who protects uh, the claims So it may first. not be that you go after other in an offensive way. It's just a, a way to be defensive and so that you will not get mm -hmm. sued for doing what you already invented. Yeah, in that, that's one purpose, right? But also, I guess, uh, I think you mentioned before, it can be seen as an asset for the company itself to say that, mm -hmm. you know, for investors and other people, uh, this is actually something we have a patent for and that increased the value in the company yeah, exactly. in some way, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you spend money on doing this as well, right? You, we're working on this, on this solution. So it, it makes sense to also claim that it's our solution in the end but uh, i mean like defensive is step one step but i i, I really like that understanding that uh, how do we translate knowledge work into assets of the company i mean like even even the hardcore challenge of getting knowledge work as part of the balance sheet so to speak mm -hmm. and then patents is actually a viable path you know you can with the patent you can then show and you can start putting value around that yeah i think I that's that's quite uh, it is. On the other hand, open source might also be a strategy, right? I mean, yeah. there are also companies building a lot of software and spending a lot of time and, and money into building software that they're then open source and, and anybody can use it. But there's also a value to that because you can get yeah, you know, help back from, but, but, from the community. But that, 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 that's a really interesting um, uh, you know, discussion. You know, okay when you contrast and you when you put the, the patent path versus the open source path and what's the pros and cons and and even can you do both mm -hmm. or is it fundamentally different philosophical ideas so one company will always go for patents and another company will always go for open source mm -hmm. that's a very you know what's your thoughts around mm -hmm. uh, because you open up you know if you elaborate yourself that's a good one yeah uh, I mean, I guess it depends also on the environment you're operating in, right? If you are uh, working in an industry where all your competitors, competitors claim everything and, and, and try to sue everybody else, um, it's probably um, a hard move to, to open source what you're doing and, and put it out there. I guess. But I, this is fun. I, I'm, let me just uh, give the listeners um, a sneak peek on some of the fun discussions we had in the after <laughs> after work. So we had uh, we had fun uh, with our guests, use for pure fun, you know, to rate, uh, you know, which one of our top of our the tech giants of the world are our top five, which one do we think is nicest? And when which one do we think mm -hmm. is, you know, you know, most evil. most evil, you know, all for fun, all for fun. And it's actually a really interesting conversation because someone highlights, uh, you know, uh, I don't like this company because they use personal information as the core value, you know, asset. Uh, so they are last. And then Anders, you're always uh, right. Right. No, I was not <laughs> going to say that, but you, so it, you always build up the ladder as a researcher, I think, and, and as like, you know, at heart, truly at heart, as a scientist at heart, the open source community, these guys provide to open source 
uh, community and these other guys they are completely locked down and they are they are ripped, they are stealing from the open source community but they're not contributing both open source and the scientific community yeah mm-hmm. so that's you're passionate about this Anders and I love it but the interesting thing is what it's almost like you have now in the same industry people you know some companies are going more the patent path mm-hmm. or proprietary path and some some are truly contributing open source and then then you can say what you like about the core business and and all that but but from the research and an open source perspective I, I find this really interesting that even the, on the on the top giant both exist so to speak any comments <laughs> oh i'm so eager to go to into this you know what i, I add that to the list you know we can have like a you know who is the best tech giant i think it's oh, an interesting discussion it's but it's more from a societal kind of thing yeah. so we have five minutes in and already in the in the rabbit hole here. yes <laughs> yeah yeah um the good the bad the ugly about the tech giants and i add that to Oh, we had so much fun discussing this. So let's let's take it on yes. on air. I like it. But going back to the patent, so um, for one, you're um, currently pursuing a patent, uh, and you're going to do it mainly yourself, or are you? We have a team. Some, have uh, a we team. are working on it as a, as a cross-functional team, actually, of, of yeah. different experts, uh, and we get help from a, from a law firm. And it's going to be filed in Sweden, EU, US. It's an EU patent. EU patent. Yeah. It's the second one that that I'm filing yeah. with a client. Yeah. And I guess EU, or do you have a good sense, you know, I'm not an expert in this at all, but do you have a good sense for the differences between EU patents and US patents? I don't, I really, I, I think it's mostly a question of um, where you start. You can always expand uh, your, your patent uh, across um, different locations and so on. I guess it's just how... How, how what is how high is the entry hurdle that you want to take yeah. right you want to start simple and then from there see uh, what you can actually what is actually granted by the patent office and what do you need to tweak to make it better to make it more appropriate and then you can kind of roll it out uh, globally in the end if you want I to guess if you compare to the scientific community you can you can have terms like the minimally viable publication <laughs> exactly yeah. and in this case it could be minimally viable patent yeah. <laughs> that you can think of <laughs> to have as many as possible in some sense to mm. increase the valuation of the company potentially mm. okay but uh, as far as i know you know eu has a bit more um higher demands on on, on software patterns at least that they mm. have to have some more practical application at least and they have to describe that in a more clear sense would you agree or do you have some? Uh, yeah, I think it's easier if you have some sort of hardware connection yeah, with your exactly. software, right? Yeah. But I looked into the, the, the patent trends for yeah. the EU and it looks like computer science or like software is one of the the trending fields for patents mm. in the EU and has been for the past two years at least. Yeah. You think that's a good or bad thing? Bad thing. The question is, why is that, right? Why why does it pop up now? Is it like now we're feeling we need to protect everything or is it because now there's a lot of innovation? Perhaps Maybe. the whole industry is going more software. You know, it's like yeah. a Tesla is not a hardware company. It's a software company. And that's why you need to patent more software than hardware these days. You think so? Yeah, or maybe it's just a type of companies that uh, use or innovate on software are different industries nowadays i guess like more of the well, say mobility and in, uh, industrial um, companies are 
really using uh, software more as a, as a core asset uh, for their business. I, I have no ab I have no clue, but I, I I think the line of thought that we are moving companies who are used to patent but in different areas are now be becoming more mature in the software area. So they used naturally continue mm -hmm. doing it yeah. in the software area. That this is one dimension. And then I think it's also the, what you were alluding to. I mean, like I'm, we are pure, purely speculating is that the maturity around computer science and the rate of innovation happening in this field now is in somewhat maturing. Uh, so th there's more going on simply. Yeah, that's, that's probably, and it's actually true. We, we looked into the, the academic um, research in that area as well, and we could see, you know, the same trends, like uh, the publications on that topic also spike. So, so maybe if you follow, if you see more publications, you see mm. more research, more things coming out, the, the, the patent trend kind of. And then there's probably some time lag before some the time industry lag, but it's correlated, maybe and, correlated. Yeah. Okay. So what's the next steps for, for your patent? Can you estimate a bit, you know, how much time do you need to spend on it? How much money does it cost to, to actually get a patent? If you just, you know, in a rough yeah. sense were to estimate that. I mean, it takes a few months, uh, I guess, usually to to go through the um, pre-application process. Mm. So you start with uh, doing your own research, writing it down. Then you do a so-called novelty search. So mm. you basically um, check what's already out there and, and review that mm. and see if it kind of overlaps with your idea. And after that, you take a decision, do I want to proceed or not? And if you want to proceed, then you, you write the whole application text, which is like a big long paper of like, I don't know, 30, 40 pages probably. Mm. And you file that and then you have to wait for a long time. <laughs> so uh, somebody at some point will read it at the patent office in a few months mm. and we'll get back to you. I think that's around three, three months or so before you get the first indication back. And then you have um, the possibility to re rewrite it, yeah. to adjust it. Um, so the answer is not yes or no. The answer is these parts are... Uh, but at yeah, least if you were to estimate the cost of actually filing a patent, would you say it's um, at least a couple of hundred thousand crowns or? It's a couple of thousand euros probably. But for, if you include the, the working the, time as well? Yeah, the, yeah, and the working time is excluded there. So yeah. it depends on uh, how many people you have, yeah. you know, you need to. So to a couple of months of man labor, so to speak, plus a couple of thousands of euros to just file the patent from a fee point of view. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember also, you know, someone yelling at me um, because I, at some point, uh, did go through a patent database searching for something, and I wrote about something in a very public forum, and you know, uh, we, I could see this patent here and that patent there, and I got yelled at, do not ever do that, um, because you know, if you get sued. If someone actually looks at your mail history or Slack channels <laughs> and whatnot, that they can see you knew about this patent because you did the search and the homework on it. If you know it, you will get fined like three times more than if you don't know it. All right. Have you heard about this? Or? I have not, no. <laughs> I didn't have a personal lawyer sitting next to me. <laughs> so so the, the, the tip from the coach, when you are doing your novelty search, don't be... Don't don't uh, write that down in any kind of digital forum that <laughs> later can be extracted when you get sued. So <laughs> someone can say that you knew. Speak on the uh, manual or analog kind of uh, phone <laughs> or something if you want to discuss these kind of things. Cool. Okay, with that, super interesting topic. Um,
patents, no patents, pros and cons. But there are pros, and, and I think we have to acknowledge that. But there are also cons, of course. Right? Mm-hmm. Mirko Gontek, very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. And you have a very interesting background, I think, um, with uh, a master in art, right, in a number of topics. And you also have a very interesting PhD, which is actually very connected to what I did as well in my PhD, you know, working with the semantic web, mm-hmm. uh, information retrieval in your case. I was more into information extraction, but also speaking about, you know, link, link data, et cetera, and, and social web, et cetera. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing more about that as well. If you remember, it was some time ago. It was in the Stone Age, yeah, exactly. <laughs> similar to your PhD. Stone Age, much older than you, uh, so. Before we started, uh, Anders was clear to point out, it's half the time from your PhD to my PhD. I don't know if that's a claim or that is good I mean, or bad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's double the time since I might did my PhD, so. And is that good or bad? Maybe. It's just an indication of how old I am. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 25. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's get started a bit. And, and um, if we start with you, um, we, we have uh, your background, of course, and we should go through it. But how would you describe yourself? Who, who is Mirko, if you just describe it from a more private point of view? In a nutshell, yeah. Yes. In uh, two I'm, words or more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a German living in, in Sweden, in Stockholm. I've been here for 11 years working in the IT industry in, in data and analytics in, mm. in many roles. I've been working uh, in consulting all the time at NetLight mm. and um, been working in, in mostly digital native companies. Um, I've been part of some, some cool growth journeys um, and have seen data analytics from from different angles during that time from you know data science but also bi data engineering i mean when i started here like 11 years ago data science wasn't really a topic yet right then then it was called bi and it was very different from from today so i think that was kind of me in a nutshell is like enjoying this ride of um of data and analytics the data ride the data ride but if we start from your original type of education, that was, was that in Germany? That, you that was in Germany, exactly. Cologne, so I, right. I was in Cologne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was, uh, what kind of courses and, and programs did you attend in the beginning? Yeah. And that's now it gets really odd. So mm-hmm. <laughs> what I studied was uh, actually three different things uh, at the same time. I studied um, applied computer science, mm-hmm. uh, musicology, and uh, linguistics, so English literature. And why is that? So <laughs> now you want to know how is the how did you poetry get of the late 20th century going together with uh, poetry, with rock star, data. Exactly. But uh, we, we must say as well, I mean, a very clear trend, I think, yes. in this podcast has been the connection between computer science and music. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we, we, we have explored it with a couple of guests. And is there a correlation here? You know, we talked, there's several. It's a lot. It's like 50%. Not 50, but it's almost so statistically we could probably go through it and argue there is a correlation. I don't know why, though. No, it's Mm. strange. So that's an interesting topic. But you started with all three at the same time? Yeah, and that's kind of a specialty of the the German education system back then, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I I studied at the um, uh, humanities faculty uh, at the Cologne University and how it worked back then, at least, that was before the Bologna reform, uh, was that you, you had always a combination of three 
um, topics that you had to combine and you could combine whatever you wanted essentially. Um, and, and the idea behind that um, is that you, through this combination, create new ideas, new, new fields of application. So it was this idea of, of kind of some sort of broad um, education within that uh, humanity. What do you think about research. that today? Do you think that's a good idea still? Or Well, I enjoyed it personally. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it gave me a perspective that was a bit... Advantage had mm. an advantage to, to very narrow niche, uh, but it also sometimes. doesn't allow you to go as deep, I guess. Exactly, it doesn't, them. and that's also kind of reflected in my whole career now mm. that I, I'm working in consulting and uh, I'm working rather broad than than deep. Yeah, um, it probably has shaped me and, and how I think and how I, I am. I would argue, and 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 we have the. Uh, I, uh, in very, very interesting conversations with Annette Kolmos. She's a professor at Aarhus University and in the engineering faculty. But, but we are talking fundamentally about how everything is changing when we need to have cross-functional teams. Mm -hmm. And we, we need to be T-shaped. Mm -hmm. Or as Annette says, T-shaped is not enough. So here, and if you extrapolate on this with, you know, where more and more things can be done with a machine, What's the value add of, of the um, uh, individual, the person, and how do we interact? So I think this intersectional innovation topic or inter, you know, mixing humanities, uh, you know, uh, with multidisciplinary, approach. multidisciplinary approach becomes core mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in a data and AI driven society also to find our feet. What is our value add? So I, I, I kind of think it's brilliant. Of course, you're not going to get as deep, but um, I don't know. I, I immediately want to say that, ooh, that's smart. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I would agree to that. And there's also this concept of range that you kind of to solve creative problems. It's probably better to have a broad profile, whereas if you have a very specific problem that you need to solve, then it's good to go deep. Like, I don't know, playing golf, it's good to train over and over again the same thing. But, you know solving creative problems that we face every day at, at uh, oh, a creative this job. this is such a rabbit hole. It is, yeah. This, but this also in, in, in AI or like in that field, I agree that, you know, the combination of tech with understanding for business is probably a super high value and, in my experience. And, and uh, oh, you open up such a Pandora's box. I'm not going to go there, but I claim that uh, we need to change from economies of scale and efficiency focus to economies of learning and adaptability focus. So we need to change the way we look at how we organize and how we drive, how we understand if, you know, the way we move forward and innovation and all this. And all of a sudden then you need to understand in what context you're innovating and then tech will be uh, the enabler. So if you don't have both angles, it's going to be very hard, right? So exactly. I mean, it's also two different problems that you can solve with um, AI. It's optimization, like yeah. making things that exist faster, uh, cheaper, and so on, better. Or you can do the transformation that you yeah. create new ideas from new possibilities through AI. So if you have the tech capability, you can first principles reinvent the way we see, look at the problem or look at the business model and do something completely different. Mm -hmm. So here, creativity becomes a core asset uh, what you're going to use AI for, right? Yeah, exactly. 
But I have to say that was not the intention I started <laughs> studying. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's an also connected to another type of discussion we have had in the past, which is, are job roles going to get increasingly specialized or generalized? Are we going to have, you know, like a data engineer labeler thing, mm -hmm. or are we going to have a more of a generalist kind of role? Um, so I think some argue, and I would agree that we are, are seeing right now an increased level of specialization. So to build any kind of system, you need to have people with different roles and that set of roles that you need to have is increasing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think it's a potentially a very scalable solution. Uh, I don't know. And you lose potentially some of what you're claiming, the ability to be creative if each single person is getting increasingly specialized. Oh. Do you think so as well? Yeah, it's an interesting problem. I mean, it's probably related to how, how big the teams are that you're working in, right? Mm -hmm. If you are just a, a one-man show, you have to be very broad and you yeah. can... Oh, as one person solve the problem. But then if you want to scale this concept uh, to a larger organization, mm. you need more people. And then suddenly it's very hard to find like 10 people or 20 people who are all super broad and have the same um, same, same direction still. So it's, it's much easier to split it up into different roles and still keep it together somehow with a kind of uh, central role that, that knows how to use the data engineer in the best way or machine learning engineer. And, and isn't this a, a quite simple hypothesis can be that we need, we really need both. So in order to go all the way down in the deepest dungeons, you need to be a specialist. So we need to have specialist roles. Then these need to be organized in a cross-functional team. Mm -hmm. And then they, and then we need to have federation, orchestration, navigation. So we need, need to have roles also to be the glue between different specialists or, you know, so then obviously then, well, we have super specialists working with generalists that can talk to the specialists. Mm -hmm. And I think we need, I think the, the way we organize an organization, operational level, tactical layer, executive level, layer will not be the same. Uh, and then we will need both. Yeah. That's and what I, you mentioned is a bit the data translator role, right? Ah, the, the, the person who was on a machine learning uh, team or, or data team and uh, kind of keeps the connection to the business stakeholders and makes sure that we don't build a solution that is actually not valuable for the, for the business. Yeah. And, and to, and to expect every super specialist to also be a specialist in business and domain is impossible. And then, and then I argue there, there are new roles that we don't really have in our organizations, which is about orchestration, harvest and reused. I mean, like if you really want to scale data and AI, how do we reuse AI from a team over here? We need to really understand the feature and how, how the context over here in order to port it to this context. So here we have completely new roles that is sort of in this tactical orchestration layer of the future company. So there are so many aspects of why we need generalists and specialists. And, and also I, from, from my experience, the, um, I mean, I'm probably biased because I'm working a lot in consulting and, and have a lot of colleagues uh, from consulting. But the best consultants are those who um, who have worked very deep at some point in their career, right? right? If you if you if you know what you're talking about in depth, at least for some topic, you have you have really an edge over somebody who has only worked in in in, in a very you know, data translator. Well, or I like what you say that it's actually one of my recruitment techniques as well. You know, speak about something you have done at depth. Mm -hmm and explain yeah. what you did. I think it's actually Elon Musk's uh, interview technique as well. 
that's, you know, speak about some problem you have worked with and describe what you did. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you can tell very quickly if they didn't really were the main contributor of that problem or the solution, if they can't explain it. But if they can, and they have at least at some point worked at something that really, really deeply, that's a really good sign. Yeah, it gives like credibility as yeah. well. Cool. Uh, and, and just to close the topic, perhaps we, we have spent uh, too long time here just you know, starting your you know, studies as well. But given the, the three disciplines that you studied in computer science, mus- musicology and English, uh, I guess it's obvious that you have most use for computer science. But yeah. have you seen any direct uses or uh, value from having knowledge in musicology or English? Actually, yes. In musicology specifically, um, one of the areas there that, that I studied was um, cognition, cognitive science, uh, yeah. but in the, the humanities angle of, of cognition, right? But there, that was my first uh, touch point with um, uh, artificial neural networks that was in computer science, modeling uh, how the brain perceives music. Right. So there is actually a, um, some sort of connection. Mm-hmm. To music in, in what way? Is it just the ability to perceive or sense music, or what? yeah? So I, I, I think like music perception works quite similar to language perception. Understanding of mm-hmm. language is kind of closely related to understanding of music or translating music into emotions or feelings in, in you. Cool. So you did your studies, and then you, in some for some reason, you started a PhD work. Why and why mm-hmm. did you choose doing that? Yeah. Good question. Like, how? Why do people start PhDs? I think yeah. I was just curious <laughs> about the topic. I mean, information retrieval was what I have uh, studied um, a lot during my my university career, and there was a lot of things going on in that in that area at that time. I think it was the time when Google just started the Google um, Google Books Library initiative, like driving around with a scanner in the universe in the libraries in the world, scanning books. So what could you do with that knowledge? That was a topic that I uh, worked on in my university time. Did you actually help out with a specific Google Books project? No, or? Okay. no but in, the, in that field, ah, okay. uh, I was I uh, I working actually on a research project that we had a similar concept where we, we scanned um, medieval charters, like uh-huh. hand, handwritten documents in European yeah. archives to make them accessible for yeah. uh, humanities research. Nice. Then building that software to to make it accessible is where I came from. And then the next step was, okay, how can we use also big data sets mm. um, to, to get some sort of added value from it? So that's where I started. And um, yeah, the, I, the reason why I did my PhD, I don't know. I guess curiosity, uh, lack of better ideas. <laughs> um, anyway, I got hooked and, and stayed at, uh, in academia for a while then. And if we, I'm so eager to stay here a long time, but we should try to keep it short here on the PhD thesis. But if we start by the end, perhaps, and, and what were the main contributions you you would say of, of the thesis work? Yeah, um, I, I pulled together three research areas. One was um, machine learning, yeah. uh, recommendation systems. The second being um, big data engineering. Mm-hmm. And third one being a semantic web or information retrieval in the semantic web. So there, what I did essentially was building um, um, a search engine, which was also a discovery engine uh, based on data from, from social 
from the social web. So back then, the social web was essentially social tagging systems or social bookmarking systems. There was Delicious, yeah. was the, the product from Yahoo. Yeah. It was the biggest um, social bookmarking system where you could access um, you know, public bookmarks from from. Uh, so people help users. out tagging or doing bookmarking in existing, um, was it like web pages or was it? It was when you, when you store a bookmark in your browser, oh, okay. you could make this public and, and then you could get the information of websites connected to uh, tags, mm. like keywords, right. but also um, to users. And then you could use the, um, yeah, that information to do to build recommendation systems on top of that. And if we go through the three, I guess, you know, most people know machine learning, of course, recommender systems, I guess most people know as well. Uh, what type of recommender system were you working with? You know, some people differentiate between, you know, collaborative filtering and content-based recommender systems. Uh, what, how would you describe the type of recommender systems you, you worked with? That was purely collaborative filtering that, uh, that I've used there. And how and would you describe that? What is collaborative filtering? So if you think about what recommendations do they uh, usually you have um, some sort of um, uh, content or like documents that you want to make accessible to to people yeah. right uh, and then there's usually a popularity curve and that curve is usually kind of a long tail uh, curve right you have uh, some content which is super popular like some websites some products are bought by many many users and then you have a long tail of, uh, of of content that is not very popular, mm. and what recommenders can do is to leverage that long tail yeah. of that curve and to boost the the, the right things on, from the long tail to the right users. Mm. And collaborative filtering, the idea there is that um, essentially users who have liked X also like Y. Right. So instead of going through just like here are the most popular books or whatever, or songs or movies, um, without, you know, personalizing in any way, you can simply look at what you have read or watched before and just look at what other user have watched the same thing and what have they watched that I haven't watched and recommend that. Yes. Would that be a... That fair? is it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, you mentioned big data engineering. Um, can you just elaborate a bit more? What did you mean with that? Um, back then, um, the, the the challenge was uh, to scale uh, recommender systems. Uh, you know, all the fancy frameworks and, and libraries that we have available and technologies now didn't really exist back then. Hadoop was just uh, just a thing then. Yeah. That was now we're talking like two thousand and uh, what six or so. Yeah. Um, so, so Google just, has started with their kind of Hadoop yeah. things, but it wasn't really available in any public yet, way. right? I think Hadoop was public. Well, when is Mapbar published? Well, when is that? I don't know, but Hadoop was, was it? But must have been around that time. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. in the beginning. I think I don't you know, want to say anything wrong. Now. I mean, Google started in like late late nineties, yeah. and, and they started off, of course, from so, doing the big data. What was the Hadoop name in, in Google? It was something else. Uh, Is that, would you argue that the uh, the research or the work done in Google, I mean, like they needed to solve a data problem with tech that didn't exist, so they invented mm -hmm. it more or less? Is that the origin before Hadoop? Is that how you I, see I would them? argue that the whole MapReduce era that they started with you know, was the reason that they open sourced something called yeah. Hadoop later. 
Mm. But it originated, I probably had some other people doing something similar, but they made it work at least. Yeah, that's how I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> and are we talking but, 2005 or 2009 or in the 90s even? I mean, 90s, Google didn't basically exist. Exactly. They started in the end, but... But the, I think I do probably started around that time, six or seven, or I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. 2000, mid, mid 2000, something like that. that. Yeah, Google it. But, but in, in, in essence, you, you're working on a problem that doesn't really have a, I mean, like you can't discuss this problem with today's eyes. You need, yeah, exactly, to, yeah. you need to put yourself back in where were we in 2006. Yeah. So to, to scale like recommendation algorithms was a challenge back then. So the, the first, I used a framework called Taste. Taste and the version was 0.1. <laughs> it was the, the first, uh, it was a recommender system framework with a couple of algorithms and it got later wrapped into uh, or became Apache Mahout. Mm, uh, it was an Apache framework and that got then wrapped into um, Spark later. So there were some is, evolution steps in between now and, and back then. And I can say Hadoop was actually launched in April 1st, 2006. So it was quite on the money. On the money. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> okay. So you try to find a big data way using uh, MapReduce-based techniques to do recommender systems in some way. Exactly. And combine that with um, linked data or semantic web technologies to, to build essentially, today you would say a knowledge graph. So a, a graph of connected concepts, connected users that you can publish. Uh, yeah, so, so how would you describe the, semantic web? web then? You know, what is mm. the semantic web for people that haven't heard of that term before? So it's uh, the idea is that semantic web was supposed to be a layer on top of the, the normal web, web, the, 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 the world wide web, <laughs> the world wide web, yeah. yeah. Um, and there were some technologies like RDF and ontologies um, to essentially um, link, uh, name concepts, like, you know, you would create um, an entity, which would be a text file, HTML file with your name, and then you would link it to, to Henrik, mm -hmm. another entity, and you would describe that link as friends or colleagues or something. And then you build a network of that. And this and that's is ontologies. Then, that's, yeah, essentially, that's the semantic web then. Mm. I guess you can phrase it like machines at that time, at least, were too stupid to understand mm -hmm. the human web. So you need to have a special web that was a much more structured, yeah. right? And then you have these kind of RDF frameworks. And I mean, but, but because language, this is, this is yeah. its own field, right? And, and now we are using words that may be very common for several people, but not for everyone. So uh, you, you, we are using a word ontology here, which I think is a quite central concept in what we are talking about now. What is an ontology? An ontology is a description of relationships between objects. Objects, yeah. And, and kind of relationships, but also hierarchies. Mm -hmm. So describing a, um, a thing as a sub concept of another, yeah. like an example, but <laughs> yeah. uh, like a, a car and a, a bicycle are both vehicles. Yeah. So not only ontology would describe this relationship between the three of them. And what is RDF? RDF, what does it stand for? I don't Resource even remember. Description framework. I Thank think. you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a language similar to HTML to focus um, on to describe ontologies in so a format that can be published on the web. So RDF is, by is the protocol or the way we describe things in, in a structured way so we can build an ontology or use it in an ontology. How, how, R RDF is like what HTML is for websites. Okay. Yeah, so it's for based ontologies. on XML and it's just you know, a schema that makes it possible to formulate triples usually 
Mm-hmm. So the triple is basically some kind of object with a relationship to another object. And that forms a triple. And you can have different schemas on top of that. And that you can have over that the old thing. You know, I did I have courses in semantic yeah. web. So just and then you have ontology web language on top of that. And maybe yeah, maybe description logic that actually could formulate, you know, what the relationship really means, etc. And and yeah. there is there's a, there's this sect. <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, like we, many thought, you know, and I, I think that's why I also did the research here that we need something like this, mm-hmm. the semantic web and all that. And and uh, we we have been trying to figure that out. And and now maybe we, we have now uh, we talk about knowledge graphs and, and there, this is still very much alive and kicking. But I think there was also at this point in time, 2005, six, uh, we thought this was going to be even bigger. I, yeah, I would argue. it was a concept that was pretty big back then, but it didn't really take, take off. off. No. Um, and I think the, maybe one of the reasons was that the whole um, concept of semantic web was not only to build ontologies, but also to make those publicly available, like the World Wide Web, right? And, and maybe there was a lack of incentive for for content providers to do that, because as a company, you can also build ontologies for yourself, and you can probably find um, more efficient ways to, to represent ontologies or to make them um, con- to con- process them in your in your in software your, in your context, yeah, uh, exactly. Like, then to publish it uh, publicly on the web using these technologies. So if you think about concretely, you know, uh, storing these triples that you mentioned in databases is like not trivial. You know, you need to create new ba- database technology in order to query those triples and so on. So it's probably much more efficient or easier to to go for your old. Um, relational database and, and build your own custom software on top of that to build ontologies. Yeah. And maybe that was the reason why it didn't really uh, and, fly in the end. And what's your view here? Because I know you spent a lot of work on this and you kind of left, yeah, yeah. you delusionized. I was sad that it didn't take off. But What was the I'm promise and, and why why don't you put it? In, what was the promise that it had? That, it that was really beautiful in the sense that it was possible to formulate something with very, very clear meaning. That's, you know, that's what semantics come from. It had an exact and unambiguous meaning. It sounds like beautiful from a math point of view. And, and it was developed by a set of academics that used like this description logic, formal logic, you know, to try to define this. It was very beautiful from a scientific point of view, but completely useless from a practical point of view. And why and, is it useless? Really, why is really it hard to one, understand. But secondly, it was not flexible and it wasn't expressive and you couldn't really formulate the type of meanings that you wanted it to do. So it, it was completely replaced, I say, instead by other things that was much, much simpler. So, I mean, today, if you want to have machines to speak to each other, you just build a REST API with mm-hmm. JSON, you know, protocol sending stuff around. And that was much more expressive and much easier to use. Not as beautiful. So, so the yeah. problem is that this is a theoretical, idealistic idea, but when you put it in the practical, dirty world, it has a very hard time to, it, it doesn't really simplify to build uh, concrete systems faster or better. Yeah. It's that like a beautiful, beautiful scientific ide- ideology, but doesn't work in practice. Mm-hmm. Or what, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. It was very acad- academic uh, from, from the start, yeah. And it never really made the leap into the industry. Could it? 
This is it still a mean, valid idea that it could if you if you work on it. I guess now the time is over, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, today we, we moved are, on. We, we see we the big on. language models, the large language models that we will yeah. have in use, and they can work directly with the text, with the images, mm-hmm. with the even hyperlinks that we do have, and of course they can then instead automatically create this kind of machine representation. So instead of having companies that needs to publish both the human and the machine content now you just need to to publish the the human content and then you have you know in, in intelligent ai systems that can automatically do the conver- uh, conversion i guess but now, to, to now you describe my phd a bit because that's oh, that was uh, a bit what i've done there that i kind of analyzed those um, social tagging systems or data yeah. from them uh, processed them with recommended systems, clustering, hierarchical clustering, mm-hmm. and outputted the, the RDF triples or the semantic web content from that. And that sounds awesome. That's it cool. was an awesome idea, right? <laughs> it was. <laughs> so what, what, was it a successful PhD or, or was it, uh, you know, we, we have had, uh, had such a great idea, but uh, was it successful in the terms of what you're trying to achieve? For me personally or for the world? Yeah, for the world? <laughs> Probably didn't matter so much for me personally. It was a it was a, a fun uh, four years. But did you get to the point where you could prove it? It makes something work. Yeah, I actually built um, like a search engine. Like I had a website up and running where you could you know, search um, social tagging systems. It was like a so. In in essence, you you could in take your idea and what you were thinking to a working prototype. Yes. That's what I did. That's success in my success for me, but then <laughs> I had no users on it. <laughs> How did that search engine work? If you try to explain that, what uh, was the difference between normal search engines and the one you built? So in, in, in addition to the search engine, I also added recommendations into the search results. So you, you didn't only get like a ranked result of, of websites for keywords that you search for, but you could also you got also personalized, um, the, the ranking was personalized based on a recommendation system. So you could also navigate concepts to, to discover. So it was the idea to, to combine um, search with discovery. I, I like it. So basically you can say that the collaborative filtering aspects basically say that you understand what you like based mm-hmm. on your history and you can see other people that have similar history to yours. You have then, you know, presenting results based on, on, on that type of history in some way. Yeah, and then also recommended other search terms for oh, you to, to oh look nice. into. Flip, flip the search term. I love mm-hmm. it. Sounds like a very beautiful That's idea. That's a beautiful idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it a thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, and, and, and were you ever at that point in time, ooh, I, I'm sitting on a new Google here. Were you thinking about starting or doing something no, I was I was not because, and that was also, I guess, at the end of my PhD time, I was really ready to leave academia and go into the real industry I mean, because I was a one man. Everything was alone, right? I was sitting in my my room there for four years, uh, <laughs> writing a thesis and encoding something, and and that was the mind blowing change when I started in uh, in consulting that I suddenly had like a lot of colleagues working with me and the, the iterations were much faster and, and that was a fantastic moment for me and yeah. I would never go back to academia now. You know, I, I made the switch as well. You know, I started in academia and I continued for some time and I even thought, you know, I will never leave academia. You know, this is the proper place if you properly want to, you know, produce knowledge in some way. But I left and, and I must say, I basically say the same thing that you did right now. 
for one, you, you, you have to spend so much time, you know, doing, did you continue after the PhD at that time to, you know, do research project in academia, no, doing the no. funding? Okay. Uh, so you didn't have to do all this kind of, you know, writing funding applications and being a bit subjective in how you write, write them, et cetera. And then the slowness, I guess, you know, the, the time before you actually have something that provides value for society in some way is, is very long, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then when you move to industry, it, it goes so much faster. So you can actually do provide some use, some value in a faster sense. Definitely. Right? And yeah. also the support that you have by getting access to infrastructure, like computers, like mm -hmm. just ordering a server at the university. <laughs> so a, it's like a, a project. Yeah. What do you think about that in general? We should move to NetLight then and how mm -hmm. you came in contact with that. But are you a bit afraid about the future for academia? Yeah, I am. I think it's a, a bit concerning that, um, you know, in order to make good or impactful research in, in the field of AI or computer science in general, mm. you, you probably will want to work at big tech companies mm. and not in academia, right? Mm. Um, and the concerning thing about that is, of course, that who drives the agenda? Yeah. Should Should the tech companies drive the research agenda or should we have a, uh, a more democratic um, way to 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 decide on, on research strategy, strategies it's, it's innovation funny. strategies we always get into the same topic i'm trying mm -hmm. to avoid using the term <laughs> now we, we have this term you know that we call the ai agenda uh, mm -hmm. sorry the ai divide and uh, it, it always gets back to this some way of, and, or form but would you say for one do you agree do you think that the big tech giants are driving the research agenda these days yes absolutely yeah <laughs> question but still you know some people may not understand or believe that yeah. and we also see in the big brain drain i mean the reason for this is is not because the universities are, are bad it's just that you know they take they bought them all yeah they employ yeah. them and, and mm. there's a big drain drain from yeah. academia into tech giants and then of course they will drive the agenda in some yeah. way so can you think about any way to to fix this or should we simply allow this transition to happen or what do you think? I think it's not not um, only a problem of computer science. This this divide exists in in many aspects of society, right? Mm -hmm. It's also in, in in politics and um, you know, yeah, so pu public so they... services. And there's also a brain drain there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I don't have an easy fix here. I think it needs to be addressed. Uh, yeah. Yes. But uh, so not an easy fix. But should we work on it? I think we should. Yeah. I Why? Why well, don't you well, because I want uh, that our Democrat. society is shaped by um, not by the agenda of a commercial company. No, you want a higher purpose for society. Isn't it, isn't it probably that it's dangerous when the power goes to the hands of the few, so to speak? Is that the main problem you would say, or? Yeah, it goes to a few, but also to a few not. <laughs> not elected for that purpose, right? Yeah. And none in Europe, basically. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Okay, but you that's an interesting topic in itself, you know, academia versus tech giants. I, I, so, so, sorry for I, being uh, such a spoiler when you want to move ahead. Yeah. I just wanted to, for my own uh, personal uh, amusement or knowledge, could we make the link, you know, finalizing your PhD and semantic web topic? What's the linkage now to what we now describe as uh, knowledge graphs or, and we have the companies like Neo4j and all that stuff. 
Uh, is this something completely different? How would you contrast or relate to correlate what you were doing and what Semantic Web is all about with what we now talk about as knowledge graphs? Knowledge graphs and the Semantic Web kind of solve the same problem to make, um, to build ontologies or build like knowledge graphs to, to build like um, relationships, relationships between, between things. things. Uh, but knowledge graphs don't necessarily pursue the idea of making this public on the web and, and making it part of the World Wide Web. So a knowledge graph is, please help me here, is that just, this is another way of representing data. We have a relation in a database mm -hmm. that we can have different ways of structuring data. And now we have this way of structuring data uh, that is useful in certain It's cases. just the most efficient way to store this kind of relational um, yeah. you know, graph data. So it's not a relational database anymore. It's a knowledge exactly. graph Exactly. It's a different database. technology to store I'm data. Be clear, be clear about the terms here. I think. Yeah, I don't you know. know. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we please. have graph databases like mm -hmm. Neo4j Thank you. and so many others. Thank you. And that's one thing. And uh, we also have you know, graph neural networks. They also operate on the same data structure. And, um, and that's very interesting field in say but i think knowledge graphs is something else potentially okay and please disagree if you if you don't agree but no, I'm, i'm open I'm, as a layman here i'm trying to understand the definitions yeah. you now said graph database is this so what is knowledge graph yeah yeah i mean if you take the most common one uh, and i get google has you know a knowledge graph and when we search for something you can see to the right or in the top some kind of fact sheet saying uh, what's the you know who is uh, Trump and you can see some knowledge about him. He was born there. He, he says she's that and blah, blah, blah. They have a knowledge graph about the world in some way or about some field. So that is basically what you also spoke about before. You have objects and relationships to them with knowledge, but graphs can be so much more. Graph databases is just the data structure yeah. and you can use mm -hmm. it for a knowledge graph potentially, but knowledge graphs by itself is an application of something that uses the graph. Yeah, so, yeah, so this is very useful because now, because me not knowing the lingo correctly, mm. as I, 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 I took a graph database company, Neo4j, and, but I put the, I, I put the header or the uh, label of uh, knowledge graph, which is actually not then correct. No, you can think yeah. about social, you know, networks. There's another application of graph databases or graph structures. Mm -hmm. yeah that is not potentially the same as knowledge graphs. Yeah. So what we're talking about is graph database as a way to organize instead of relational database. Is that correct? Yeah, you can, it's mm. a different thing. I'm learning. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, I, I have my subjective thoughts about knowledge graphs and, and I know some people have high hopes for it. Um, I think we need some more soft knowledge graphs as long as we move in that direction. I'm, I'm what, a, what is a soft knowledge graph? <laughs> That's a good one. Mm, should we talk about this? Uh, now? You, <laughs> if you flip these comments, you know, you correct us, then you know, what is a soft? Yeah, let's okay. Go, let's go. So, you know, there is actually a very big controversial discussion right now on Twitter, et cetera, in the last couple of weeks about AI and especially about deep learning versus symbolic AI. And um, we have some people like uh, Mark, David Marcus, or no, no, yeah. Gary Marcus and then Jan LeCun, you know, on, on two different sides here. And Jan LeCun wrote famously like a week ago, put up or shut up. 
<laughs> in a tweet. <laughs> and uh, he was a bit tired, I think, that we have so much people working on saying, you know, symbolic AI is, you know, is very important. And, and I can agree, but it depends on what you mean with symbolic AI. If you mean the type of description logic used in semantic web, in the um, ontology web language, for example, that's not the, the future, I would argue. That's a, my very subjective view of it. But um, if you then speak about symbolic as, uh, as Gary Marcus speak about like um, um, Alpha Zero, for example, or Alpha Go, you know, where they wrote that kind of AI system to play chess or Go or whatever, they of course had deep neural networks in it, but they also had like a Monte Carlo tree search. And then Gary, and I'm probably paraphrasing here, but he argues that that is symbolic AI. That the mm -hmm. Monte Carlo tree search is more or less a hand-coded kind of logic or reasoning um, that is combined with deep neural networks and they together form a hybrid AI system. And, and if, if that's what you mean with symbolic AI, then I agree. That's something that any kind of most, I would say, AI system that even use deep learning have to have in some way. But then you can, you know, th this is a big gray zone. I think people are confusing terminology here in what they mean. So going back to knowledge graphs and soft knowledge graphs versus hard knowledge graphs, hard knowledge graphs would be the description logic, hard GoFi, tr traditional kind of you know, logic-based knowledge graphs, that everything in the knowledge graph is encoded in RDFs, for example. Mm -hmm. That I don't think is potentially a viable thing unless you have automatic way to create it, like you said, then potentially you can find a way to solve it. I think a better way is to, to create like an um, internal representation automatically that is done in a soft way, like um, a feature vector, some kind of latent representation that describes these are the concepts that you have right now. Like these kind of neural differential machines that, that produce some kind of memory that was done in a soft way. You don't know exactly what each neuron or number means, but it's something that is being learned. And, and it's much more similar, I would argue, to the human brain that don't have symbolic hard logic running there. It's some kind of soft logic in the human brain that is being built up. And then you can do symbolic reasoning in a soft way in the brain. It's very fluffy the way that the human brain reasons. But if that is what you mean with symbolic reasoning, then I'm all for it. And that is what I mean with soft knowledge graph and soft reasoning. Do you see my point or do you? All right, maybe. Not sure if <laughs> I follow through all the way. No. Uh, it's a really big so thing so in this sense, sense instead of hard coded hard knowledge graphs hard coded or, or you know following the triplets and all that there are you know um, AI ways that you can find clusters you can find logical areas softer uh, I mean, logical you can build, relationships you can build soft concepts if you call it that you can build some kind mm -hmm. of uh, soft latent representation of symbols mm -hmm. of pieces in the knowledge graph but that shouldn't be like a single discrete object in that case. Okay, yeah. Wow, this was a rabbit hole, wasn't yes, it? It was, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's leave that for now. That's so yeah. much fun, though. <laughs> okay, you, you went into NetLight somehow. Um, how did that happen? How did you get in contact? Why did you choose to, to join them? Yeah. Uh, uh, many questions in one. I, I guess I, I was... Um, 
I didn't um, I didn't leave uh, Cologne, Germany during my whole university career, and I mm-hmm. was ready to. Uh, I wanted to go abroad, go out into the world, and uh, I was a bit attracted to Scandinavia, mm-hmm. um, specifically in Stockholm. I liked the, the IT industry back then already. It kind of was developing. Mm-hmm. There was uh, Spotify was uh, one of the companies, right. one of the brands back then. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of more. Um, and I also knew that I wanted to work in consulting um, because I liked that you know, broad kind of uh, work. I wanted to see different things and, and experience different companies. And, uh, and then it was a lucky shot. I, I just applied in actually in Stockholm, but also in other, in, in France and in Switzerland. And um, <clears throat> the best match that I found was really NetLight, which was um, a small consultancy back then. We were 150, 160 people. It's not that small. Like not that small, that's true. But compared to now, it was yeah. it was small. And uh, NetLight had just had off, uh, an office opened in, in Munich. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so there was a connection you know, to Germany, which made sense for me. Yeah. There was an exit plan. <laughs> yeah. So um, NetLight is a Swedish founded company. It's a Swedish founded company. company yeah. The headquarters here in, in Stockholm. And now we have offices in, in all of Scandinavia and uh, Germany, Switzerland. Um, back then it was only you know, Scandinavia, only Sweden, uh, Norway, and Munich. Yeah, and, and I liked the what I liked about um, consulting and specifically about NetLight was this the the way forward for me was I could work technically. At the same time, I could kind of experience different different topics, different companies, different approaches. Um, I had a couple of other interviews with other companies where I had to decide, do I want to become a technical person or a kind of consultant? Mm. And I didn't like, I didn't want to leave the tech behind. I wanted to continue that road. Um, And that was really what I found here. Cool. Um, Did you move to Stockholm then or did you? I moved to Stockholm, exactly. Yeah. So I've been here for eleven years now. I was uh, I was back in Germany for a few uh, few client engagements for a while, but um, basically I've been living in Stockholm. Do you, do you feel more like a Swede, or do, are you are you are you are you feeling that you want to go home to Germany no. still? No, I, I'm like oh, when you go home and meet your parents. Of course, you're going home in one way, but I feel home? like a Swede. Yeah, I feel like. Um, Something in between, maybe, or both, German and Swede. Uh, I don't feel like a German anymore, not fully anymore, uh, but also not like a full Swede, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's I, a weird... Uh, is, no, but for me, it's a, it's a relevant be. question because uh, I, I did my university degree in Australia. And then I was back in Sweden. And then I went another stint and lived and worked in Australia for three and a half years. So, so all up around six and a half years. I definitely feel Swedish now. I'm not sure how Swedish I felt when I lived there. And I definitely feel like I have two homes. Uh, yeah, I feel Swedish when I'm back in Germany and I feel German when I'm in Sweden. That's the point, isn't it? Isn't that the point, yeah. right? It is. It's like me, you know, I'm from Kalmar, the southeast <laughs> part of Sweden. And uh, when I come to Kalmar, they, they think I speak, you know, the Stockholm kind of Swedish in a horrible way. And when I come to Stockholm, you know, I, I, I speak in a horrible kind of Kalmar type of, of, of Swedish in a horrible way. So you don't fit anywhere or everyone uh, thinks you're not but, a native. But, but it's, it's actually elaborate on when you're in Sweden, you feel German. And when you're in Germany, you feel Swedish. Could you use, I think this is so true, but if no one has lived abroad, I think it's a good, Yeah. How, what do you mean with that? Oh, 
that's it's really hard to describe but you know um i mean i really feel at home in, in stockholm uh, of course and i've been here for a long time and then and this is my this is my my place um, but still there are some things that i i guess can't i can understand them but i can't feel them so i don't have the same childhood memories than, than exactly like this, a, a yeah. swedish person has for example i haven't seen the same childhood tv shows and, and i haven't been to the school here and, and so on so i think there there's cultural this, cues cultural cues i guess yeah exactly that these, these things but i can't really relate to things in the same way at the same time when i'm back in germany i now have a, a different kind of perspective on things i suddenly i feel like Oh, that seems odd. Why do we do it like this in Germany? Exactly. <laughs> that I haven't seen or realized that before. But now I have this outsider perspective on things suddenly. But uh, I think this is a blessing. I, I I've really thought a lot about this uh, because sometimes you know we we had three years in Australia. Two of my children are born in in Sydney, and we had this fundamental conversation: Should we be become Australia? Should we move forever? And then in the end, we didn't, right? We and and maybe that's one of the hardest choices. Mm -hmm. You know, why did we? Why the hell did we move back or whatever? But I think so. I've thought a lot about this, and 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 for me, it's also this topic that you get an outside-in perspective on yourself, and and uh, the, uh, even how you are as a person. More relaxed in Australia <laughs> and more workaholic in Sweden. Yeah, you know, don't don't ask me why, but. Yeah. So many things like that is a little bit like when you do a, a stint abroad, uh, it changes perspective. It, it's like a boot camp. And for me, yeah. it was like a boot camp. You know, first you have to, they, they broke me down <laughs> and then <laughs> built me up from, from scratch. I mean, That's right. moving here and not knowing where to buy food and like, I didn't understand anything, but and that then, kind of, I think it, it helped me. I mean, for me, it made me who I am today. It was like a great experience to, uh, to become myself. And, and, and then in the end, if I, I speak for myself, it's like, really, really annoyed with some stuff when you live in Australia that, oh, that just works in Sweden. And then when you're in Sweden, it's like, oh, come on, how bureaucratic or how, you know, don't, don't mess with my life. Let's do like the Aussies do, you know? So it's also this topic that you see, it's a little bit like you get out of the bubble, you're so indoctrinated, but when you live in two different places, you get a little bit distance to, you can see through the bullshit a little bit as well. Like you can see through... The bullshit, but you can also see, oh, this is so fantastic. Stockholm is so fantastic. It's so good in these areas. So, so, I, so for me, it made me appreciate stuff more, but also understand, where, you know, okay, this is this is actually a filter bubble in Sweden. Yeah, and on a professional level, actually, it's quite funny because, um, you know, Sweden has or Stockholm IT industry has this edge in certain things, and when I go to Germany to the to our clients and offices there, they have another edge, like, and this is a really cool combination that we also use to make uh, to make business actually so we have you know in germany looking at the um, our data clients or machine learning clients there we have a lot of the big companies who have large deployments large organizations large tech um in in stockholm you work more with um, sm small medium sized enterprises where we maybe move a bit faster and more creative um, but we don't roll it out so so largely so it's different challenges and, and using those learnings in, and and reversing it and going with the learnings from stockholm to uh, to our munich clients and vice versa cross pollinate it's cross pollinate cross pollinate yes that, that's really useful 
And you're today the global head of AI and analytics, right? Or yeah, that's why I, what I call myself. Yeah, <laughs> we, we don't have these uh, these roles at Netlight. We, we don't okay. use roles so much. Yeah. But essentially, I've been just been around for the longest, <laughs> working with <laughs> data and analytics in Netlight, and 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 um, I'm holding together our community of of data and analytics uh, yeah. consultants and try to to build this um, community internally but also build our our brand or our our, uh, our services around but, that but I, i think you need to introduce netlight uh, to the audience because yes. in my opinion just yeah. by going into netlight's web page it's not the normal consultancy so if you go into the normal uh, web page of netlight And you're trying to figure out what are the dimensions they're, they're working on. Okay, digitalization, something, something. Come on, I want to know if they do AI. I want to know if they do BI. I want to know if they do service design. None of that. But you talk a lot about the values, the culture, and, mm -hmm. and, and the mindset. So for me, very, very interesting. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the NetLight? Yeah, it's philosophy. a very interesting company. And, and we are um, a IT consultancy. Um, based in like the headquarters in Stockholm, we have offices in all Scandinavian capitals, but also in, in a couple of uh, German sites, Munich, Hamburg, Berlin in Germany, in Amsterdam, yeah, in Zurich. Uh, we are 2000 people. And what we do is um, we do consulting for anything that you need in order to make a digital innovation in your business. So, you know, we have um, people that all kinds of roles, everything from developers for different tech um, areas, but also product management, also um, uh, IT management, uh, data science, data engineering, um, UX, everything that you need <laughs> at some point to, to, to make your digital business um, successful and innovate on that. And, I mean, that sounds great. and you mentioned a number of roles now, and I think mm -hmm. this is, you know, also connected to what you spoke about, you know, specialization and the yeah. roles. <clears throat> what are the main roles that you can provide as a service, so to speak, from NetLight to companies? You mentioned data engineer, data scientists, product management. Can you go, what are the top ones that you would say you can provide? Um, the roles that I just mentioned, I guess, are the top ones, like developers. Mm. Like, so for a developer for, in, in a general in, sense? In, or? Yeah, we have specialists for anything you want, essentially, mm. you know, backend developers, um, Front uh, C++ developers, .net, React stuff. Um, yeah. mm. and, and usually I would say, like, we don't have anybody who does .NET for five years. We yeah. have usually a bit broader profiles okay. um, because we, we're trying to stay as relevant as possible. And that's also why we are not a .NET consultancy or, or we are not a data science consultancy because we are, we want to stay, we, we have to stay fluid mm. in order to, to stay relevant for the market because the market is also uh, fluid. Things that are hot topics now were not hot topics five years ago. But um, how, how do you develop those skills? I mean, I guess you want to provide a broad set of competences that you can help company with. Yeah. But then you want to continue to evolve as a company in NetLight and you want to have this kind of broad coverage in the best way mm -hmm. you can do. So either you can say that you want people in NetLight to be increasingly broad, generalists, 
And you say that, you know, you shouldn't just be a back-end engineer. You should also be a front-end engineer, or you should be a data scientist, or a data engineer, or a DevOps person, or whatever. How do you, how do, you do personal development in NetLite? How do you build up people that have... Yeah, we don't manage people. I mean, our people manage themselves and manage their own careers, right? And we we don't tell anybody you need to be more broad or so on. So please, let's go the real, uh, let's go deeper on how NetLite works because fundamentally the whole management principle is more closer to holacracy, advocacy and stuff like that. And maybe not everybody knows about these concepts. But I think it's very, very interesting to understand how NetLight works yeah. in this sense. You can think of NetLight as a, as a network of IT professionals, right? Mm-hmm. We, we are hiring uh, people mostly from uh, university graduates. And, and our idea is to, to get people with high potential, get the best people with the highest potential in the company, mm-hmm. and then build their careers or let them build their careers and give them everything they need in order to but, grow. But they have a the full-time employment. And they have like, a full-time employment at mm, MetLite, yeah. yeah. I mean, that sounds great. And so you bring them in rather young and you can start to help them build their careers yeah. in some way. But, but we don't know what the best career is for a person, right? That That's uh, on the person to figure that out and then to, to mm. have that opinion. And that's where it, it kind of makes this connection between the market mm. and the talent management because it goes hand in hand. You cannot really discouple them, mm. uh, decouple them. So uh, we don't know what the hot topic will be in five years, of course. Nobody knows. But, how, but what is your fundamental then management or governance structure? Mm. Is it holacracy closer to that or, or is it something else? Because it's not Tayloristic or, or you know, how, how are you structured then in order to be able to, that's fantastic that someone can go in and build their careers, but how, how do you fundamentally operate? Work, how yeah. does it work, operate? We operate by personal relationships. So we are a very tightly knit um, network of, of people who know each other. At 2000? At 2000, yeah. Wow. And we communicate a lot. Uh, we also have, um, you know, we have mentorship as a concept. So ah, right. senior people mentor, um, you know, newer, newer people um, in their career. We have also, I would call it interest groups or like some sort of Guilds. Expert, yeah, yeah. guilds, whatever you want to call <laughs> exactly. it. We call them uh, competence cells sometimes. Um, but essentially, when you ha- when you are a data scientist, you will have a, a lot of peers around you, and you would um, organize in in peer groups to to learn together to to and go to events. Who's to the organize peer groups events. manager? There is no manager. That's the, okay, the so funny thing. It's a, it's a it's a flock concept, right? So it happens automatically. So we provide the platform. We have kind of the, the the office we have the tools to make connections we introduce people to each other and we we give people the opportunity to to explore topics we have uh, internal conferences uh, for knowledge exchange we also invite external people yes. to, to get new input in um, but that, does it become an informal leadership based on seniority because if you're a flock even a is. flock needs to find a direction yeah it's very informal and and, and we we call it leadership instead of management, right? We are lead, we have leaders, um, but the leaders are not explicit leaders. So I can't, you know, I can't manage people, but I can influence people. You know, I can give people, I can be a role model to others. I can I can give them, I can coach them and tell them what I think is a good move in their career, but I can't force them to, and, to make and, that move. And used to 
be very, very practical. How do you concretely hire and how do you fire mm. in this context? I mean, like concretely, some people are not, or maybe you never yeah. fired anyone, but but how, how does that work? How we need to find these people who want that, right? You yeah. cannot hire people who want to be managed. We cannot hire people who no. are waiting for, who want to have the career path on paper no. printed out, right? But, but, but if you have 2000 employees, at some point in time, someone jumped on the net yeah. train that wasn't really understanding what they jumped into. Mm. Because I, I, I think this is fantastic, mm. but I, I also think this, this, this needs to be a very chosen path. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we, so we put a lot of effort on, on recruitment. So we don't outsource recruitment, no, recruitment or talent acquisition is, is one of our core business functions. And so is sales. Mm -hmm. And those two work together, right? Mm -hmm. So we have three talent management, talent acquisition, uh, the sales, and then we have the, the consulting business, the delivery, so to speak, the, like going out to the clients and delivering. Those are our core three business functions. And, and we're starting to recruit very early on. So we have um, building a strong brand at universities. We, we also go into the universities for events and, and for you know, finding those people already in the middle of their studies, not afterwards. How do you do that? Too? So we have um, you know, mentorship programs already oh. at the universities where we provide like coaching, mentoring for Students, do you have internships as well, or um, we, we do have some. Uh, I don't know what it's called nowadays. We, we do have some summer sort of internships. Or, yeah. yeah, we have summer jobs. And we have um, programs to to give people opportunities to to try mm -hmm. out. Um, to look, but how look do you handle personal development then? If you don't want to manage people, but lead them, but do you have some way to still guide them with personal development? Uh, Yes, we do. And we work a lot through a role modelship, mm. uh, but also through um, finding the right um, opportunities for people. That's that's really where the sales comes in, right? So we don't want people to to be told what they should work, what client they should pick, mm -hmm. but we want people to to act actively play a role in finding their next engagement and, and, and connect the... I mean, our sales people know the industry. They know all the opportunities that are out there, out there. Mm -hmm. And we can need to connect those opportunities with what is it that I need as my next step in my career. Mm -hmm. And this is only possible with a very personal relationship between, between people. Okay. But let me be a bit more concrete then. I mean, for younger people, you say you hire directly from universities. And um, I remember myself when I was in university, I thought, you know, I was, uh, the best of everything. I, I knew much more than my professors and you were a bit idiotic. Um, there is this term for this, what is called um, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you heard about that? Yeah. So the more you know, the less you think you know. Oh, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and the less you know, you think you know everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially by doing a PhD, as you did as well, you know, that was really an eye-opener for me as well. And and meeting my like PhD supervisor, he was really changing the way I looked at things and, uh, and opened my eyes, so to speak, that I do know nothing more or less. And, but still you are working with a lot of junior people that potentially have that kind of misconception of the world and they don't understand the limitation, their own limitations. Mm. I mean, I was one of them, right? I came out pretty cocky from, yeah. from academia. Yeah, yeah. And me as well. Mm. But, but how do you handle that? I mean, you still want to grow people. You still want people mm. to get understand, you know, their limitations, and, and they want to 
make them develop and, and perhaps take courses or learn things that they don't know mm-hmm. today so they can be, you know, the, the best for themselves and yeah. the best for NetLight in some way. We trust people a lot. We, we trust everybody who we hire mm-hmm. that they that they can do what they think they can do, what they say they can do. Yeah. Um, and we throw people into the deep water usually early mm-hmm. on in their career, right? And so you let them do... You let them fail in some. We way, let or? them fail, of course, but but in a in a we give a frame, right? We we don't let people fail without a support network and, and without a structure. You let, around them, you let them have a go, but with a the mentorship there to pick up. Yeah, we have, we put we usually see uh, make sure that people find the deep end of 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 where they are, right? It should always be challenging, but also not. We don't, don't we don't want to set up people for failure, of course. No, of course no. um, so in the beginning of the career, it's a bit more structured. We have a quite structured um, onboarding um, mm-hmm. process where we onboard um, to our internal concepts, but also to the mentorship program that we have. We make sure that people get to know other relevant people and so on. So that's quite a, a structured approach in the beginning, and it gets less and less uh, structured the more senior you become. But but I think this is fantastic, very interesting. But but it, for me, it, it raises the topic of what should I recruit for if mm. someone should be successful in in netlight? So you know, personality trait. You know, what is motivating you versus talent versus competence? You know, h- how do you think about the ideal candidate in in the in the and from the netlight perspective, but also this person will love it here. Mm. This uh, this person will not maybe thrive here. We have to we have to recruit for personality. We cannot recruit <laughs> for for skills because we don't know yet what the skill hot on the market will be in in three years or five years when so, we have grown so, this person. So it's more personality and um, you know the way they are. Absolutely, but and there is a baseline, of course, of right? Course. So if you come out of KTH or of some engineering school, you, you come with a certain uh, technical baseline, and that we check, of course. Uh, but on top of that, that's not enough for us. On top of that, you need to have, um, you know, the the mindset and and, and the so desire what, to work like we were. Doing. What is the mindset that you're looking for? You know, if if gonna ace a netlight interview with you, mm-hmm. what are you looking for? Well, you need to you want to learn, right? Want to learn. You, you don't want to be in a niche. You want to be open-minded, explore the world that's out there, essentially. Mm. So somebody who who knows I want to work in .NET for the next ten years, that's and that's really. my thing. Probably not a not a good candidate for us. Not not great for someone else, but for this job is probably not the way you are thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Anything else C- in terms? Yeah, curiosity. Curiosity, and, I was thinking. Of course. Mm. Awesome. Um, that sounds great. And and then you have, but you still have don't have. No strong titles or anything. I mean, some other companies, and and mm. I think and one that you have worked a lot with as well. I think yeah. sometimes abuse titles a lot, and you have quickly growing from being lead of something to senior mm. in something to principal in something and and whatnot. Do you what do you think about that in general? Is that something that, that yeah we, we can't I, offer titles really right? If you are into titles, um, we will probably have a hard time to yeah. re- retain you. Yeah. Um, but that also comes with the consulting uh, profession, right? As right. a consultant, it doesn't really make sense to have a title. Like, I don't know, what would that be? A lead consultant or whatever? I don't know. I mean, if you go to McKinsey, you have a quite hierarchical ladder of, mm-hmm. you know, how you start until, you know, what what steps you are until you become a partner, right? Mm. 
and and which is very much based on the law firm model, yeah. right? So of course, in some parts of the consulting world, uh, they have uh, structured this quite successfully. Mm. Is do I think it's relevant? You know, I, I think it's very interesting to understand consulting and, and contrasting, for instance, the hardcore model of McKinsey mm. versus NetLight is very different, of course. Yeah. And I know some other websites, if you want to hire consultancies, you can specify, I want a level one, two, three, or four <laughs> consultancy. Mm. And then they have very strict definitions of what these levels of consultants does and knows. Yeah. And I mean, to, to a certain extent, uh, we do also think about what is the expectation on a consultant on mm. uh, who has worked for five years, right? So there are also expectations on ourselves to 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 have a higher impact and so on. Mm. Um, and in the actually interesting in, in the in data or analytics or AI space, we are, we're just working on carving out a bit more. What are the different typical career journeys that we see for our people mm. because that's a, a big question that somebody who comes fresh from university actually has like what kind of ex what is my journey what can i expect what is possible what is not possible right mm. so somebody who maybe comes out of uh, of university now and, and uh, like wants to work on i don't know strategy ml strategy for for a client Does it work? Does it not work? And and if not, what do I need to do in order to get there? Like, what are the step stones mm -hmm. uh, to that role? That's something we, we, we try to carve out a bit uh, currently. But I think understanding a career ladder or the or actually the, the human progression path is something that is really important and, and part of the whole game around talent management. And that's even where I think sometimes a large enterprise struggles with these new roles because there's a very clear path if you're a business controller. But mm -hmm. here, here we hire data scientists and there's not even a job description or an, an HR doesn't have you in the, in the right, I'm talking enterprise speak now, mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't know are you, are you a level five, you know, what's, what's your salary, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think a part of the maturity in, in our field, you kind of need to get there, e even as a consultant, right? In mm -hmm. order to have a, a concrete, you know, someone asked a very concrete question coming out of university, you know, wh how should I think? Yeah. What cool. do you think? Are, are we there? Are, uh, there's, there's still so many paths here, BI, data science, machine yeah, learning. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's what I mean. It's like this, this kind of concept of career journeys is a bit different from titles, right? Mm -hmm. We don't need mm -hmm. titles to have a good career journey example. I agree with this. Uh, and this is what we're kind of, uh, I'm thinking a lot about these days, like, because the, the data analytics or AI space is also a bit fuzzy, right? We don't really know what it means or what is part of it, what is not part of it. Um, we basically have come up with three areas that we believe is part of the data analytics bubble. Uh, one being um, data science and machine learning engineering. Second being uh, advanced analytics and BI, and third being um, data engineering. So those, this is how we split up the bubble. Yeah. So basically, you, you're you're highlighting a distinction between uh, uh, different parts here, and we had a lot of these conversations, mm. by the way. Advanced, and I think I, I really like how you have split up advanced analytics compared to uh, at least machine learning and engineering, and, and mm. the typical 
the blurry point is the data scientist. Yeah, exactly. And then you, someone is called a data scientist and then you scratch the surface and then I, okay, you are a machine learning engineer mm-hmm. and you are an advanced analytics guy. And probably it's also, I don't see it as distinct areas, no. but people are moving around between them and there's overlap, but a, right? There, there's some sort of gravitational yeah, exactly. force towards where yeah. you, you, where, where are you coming from or what, what is your main contribution? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I see it as gravitational force. It, it, it's not, it's not black and white, right? It's overlapped in circles. There's a clear distinction between advanced analytics, you know, doing machine learning for insights yeah. versus doing machine learning for recommender systems, exactly. as simply put, right? Exactly. And then it could be five bubbles instead of three bubbles or seven. Uh, we landed at three just because it's, you can keep it in your head and communicate. <laughs> and it those three were basically data science, machine learning engineers. It was analytics and it was data engineering. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. I, I, if someone pushed me to take it to three bubbles, I would do the same. And then, and uh, I have a question to you though. How do we, how would you call the, the combination of those three bubbles? Mm-hmm. Data and AI readiness. Data and AI. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> we can, that's a, uh, that's a, oh, I mean, like, I mean, like in the end, that's not enough, right? Because then you need to have value engineering. I mean, like, simply put, value engineering, algorithm engineering. Data engineering is one way of looking at this. And, and now I'm staying out of the BI advanced analytics space mm-hmm. a little bit. Oh, we can, this is good topics. I don't know. <laughs> cool. We have like half an hour left and we haven't even moved the, um, from the background area. So I think we should try to go for it. Close a bit the net, net light uh, discussion and perhaps you can end with a bit. Can you provide perhaps some major highlights from your time in NetLight that you can mention? Uh, some yeah. interesting project you have worked with and, and just go through them rather briefly. Yeah. I mean, I had only highlights in my career. I feel very <laughs> lucky to, to, to work where I work. I feel like there, there hasn't been any super boring uh, assignment in my whole career, it feels like. But oh, I, um, awesome. I've been at, at Spotify for a long time as, yeah. a, as a consultant. Uh, in a time where the company grew a lot, yeah. it was like, yeah, I don't, 2000 and uh, what was it? 17. 17. Yeah. Um, I started there. I worked in, in a product insights uh, mm-hmm. function there. So, and that was, uh, you know, the, the time we went, uh, we had the IPO with the company, but also then relaunching the, the new um, free app during that time. So a lot of exciting, uh, launching podcasts, a lot of exciting um, things that happened in that time. I learned a lot from, from that uh, assignment, and even though I can't, can, can't talk about the, no, the course, details. But, but if you were to speak about the company in general, anything that is different from how Spotify operates to build a product compared to other comp- companies, can you, is it something that you think is special, special for them in the way that they do it? In terms of organization, in terms of how they have teams, how, t- yeah. t- how in terms of how they do agile work, in terms of whatever. Yeah, one specialty certainly is the way analytics, product analytics, um, works with uh, product and uh, user research. Mm-hmm. So in Spotify, we have uh, product insights. We had product insights, which is a combination of analytics. It's called data scientists, but it's product analysts yes. uh, and, uh, and, and user researchers. So they're working on the same, in the same function. Why do you th- think they call it data scientists? I guess it was actually it. called product analysts when, when I started there. I think Saha Asadi was here a long time ago and she talked about it a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, it was renamed, I think, 
for for hiring reasons probably yeah i don't know of course. yeah of course it is uh, yeah. <laughs> okay but um there, there are some you know one thing that they have spoken about a bit and, and i have to do a shout out to henrik nyberg who is a famous agile coach mm -hmm. i think in in spotify that does awesome visualizations and i would really recommend anyone to look up his videos and, and presentations if they want to learn more about this but they speak about the agile you know type of work that they are doing and, and potentially that's a bit different or what's what's your thinking about how to conduct proper agile uh, development do you have any special thoughts about that yeah i think we had a pretty good and, and pretty formalized uh, process to to evolve the product um and this is i can talk about it because it's public information and yeah. so um, if you think about the, um, the product development life cycle, you know, you, you want to start with exploring opportunities. Um, then you want to you know, pick or prioritize opportunities. You want to uh, build solutions for them, test solutions, refine the solutions, and then roll it out um, in the end. That, that's roughly um, the think it, build it, ship it, yeah, exactly. uh, tweak it um, yes. uh, product development life cycle, right? Uh, and then if you think about the product analytics how and user research, it comes in at different points in that cycle. And I think Spotify is pretty good in um, defining where which um, function comes in, in that cycle. Mm -hmm. So usually or many times the, the exploratory work or the ideas, the new ideas come from user research. So there's a lot of user research being done at, at Spotify. Uh, Sometimes it comes from quant insights as well, but user research is pretty good in um, understanding why are and things like that. Both qualitative and qualitative kind of user research, right? Exactly. Yeah. I've worked mostly in with the qualitative user research. But then, uh, you know, when you go further in the in the cycle, you know, A/B testing, experimentation. Yeah. Um, that's when the, when the quant uh, side excels. Yeah. And also for people that don't uh, know it, but think it, build it, ship it, tweak it is one of the core mottos, right? That yeah. they have. So I think it's an interesting thing to have. Okay, cool. Spotify, of course. Uh, I, I, Spotify. I also worked at some other yeah, media. Media was an industry I've worked in for, for a while. I was yeah. in um, uh, at a German um, streaming video streaming um you can, website can't you say the name i can say i can say it because uh, it doesn't exist anymore it was called my video de oh. it was essentially uh, it started as a german youtube clone it was another one but okay, okay. Um, it's owned by um Posiden now which is a mm -hmm. big big media uh, tv company mm -hmm. and there i've worked on their search engine yeah uh, and and recommendation slash recommendation uh, yeah. in there. Cool. That was a, a rather short, uh, you know, assignment, but super interesting uh, topic. I thought. Have you? What is the biggest difference when you have been consulting in Sweden versus in Germany? There wasn't much of a difference, I would say. And that's also because, um, you know, as NetLight, we, we bring the Swedish way of working to our German clients. We kind of exported the Swedish they way of it. working. And this is they, they wanted the selling they wanted. I actually introduced the Swedish Fika at the client even. Uh, perfect. Awesome. Um, 
and and you have worked as a consultant for a long time, and and uh, you haven't worked as a, I mean, you are a full time employee as well. But if you were to elaborate a bit more, you know, what do you think the main advantages or disadvantages of working as a consultant are? Yeah, and and here maybe I have to again refer back to what Netlight is doing because consulting is not equal consulting. There are yeah, many no. types of consulting. Yeah, good points. Good points. And 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 what we but we are not. Oh, if you start from why do people hire me or Netlight? Mm. It's usually either because they want to grow and they're growing faster than they can recruit. Mm. Uh, that means the client is usually in a very exciting phase. Right. Uh, or uh, the client wants to try out something or do something that they haven't done before mm. and they need external experts to solve this problem. Um, so innovation. Have, uh, yeah. So that's also a very exciting uh, phase the client is in. So I'm basically always coming into very exciting positive uh, situations, positive situations uh, at my clients. Uh, and that's, that's pretty cool. Any negative consequences of working well sometimes you want to stay and, and yeah. also follow through and, and, and go down the rabbit hole yeah. Um, yeah see the whole thing through yeah yeah and and uh, it's interesting because I asked you when you've done your PhD um, if you had any ambitions to do a entrepreneur a startup and I think I think you misunderstood oh, I wanted to leave uh, academia oh yeah mm. no shit but did you ever consider taking a great idea and, and go your own route or, you know, being your own? I mean, have you ever had startup? I, I mean, like, because there's a little bit like the benefit of being a consultant, the benefit of or values and pros and cons of working in, a, in an enterprise or in a, in, in a context. And then the third route of entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think I, I'm working as an entrepreneur, actually. I'm not working in an enterprise. In an enterprise, that would mean I'm, I'm getting managed and... Uh, no, uh, for me, for me, I mean, like a uh, uh, consultant is something, it's their own yeah. breed. I mean, in my, I am a consultant and I've been a consultant and, and then I work for a while in line organizations. And then I mean, like you are in your Vattenfall, in your Scornos, mm -hmm. even your Spotify, so you're producing a product mm -hmm. and whatever. And, and, the, but then you have the difference between, uh, oh, I, I've been working as a consultant. Okay, so not in enterprise, but now I want to start my own from scratch mm -hmm. idea. Maybe yeah. a search engine. Yeah, in the sense of like building software products, I can't really do that, right? I can do it on another level. I can do it uh, in NetLight. I'm an entrepreneur in the company yeah. where I build the, the data. Yeah, uh, so you're what doing, we're doing with data. I'm doing like the business development. Entrepreneurship. So yeah, yeah, entrepreneurship. Um, yeah, no, uh, maybe that's the answer. I mean, it can also, if we take the potential disadvantages, I mean, in some way you want to build an identity in some way saying, you know, this is mm -hmm. really what I want to do. And I want to feel a strong connection to the brand in some way without working for. Um, that can potentially be a bit harder as a consultancy, would you say, right? Or Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, one drawback is also I can't talk about all my right. my fun uh, mm -hmm. war stories so much, right? Because usually it's quite secretive stuff we're working with and, and I'm not allowed to talk about the details of everything I'm doing. And I can't go to these big conferences easily yeah. uh, because everything I do is owned by the client in the right. end. Right. Right. But also what, what Henrik spoke a bit about, you know, if you start your own startup, in one way you have full control in a way you mm -hmm. actually decide the road ahead 
to an extent that perhaps you couldn't otherwise. Uh, but but, but here, here's the point that I think you made beautifully. There's different consultancies. There, you know, like you have consultancies that are very hierarchical and mm -hmm. all this. And here in NetLight, in a way, you are within a context, but you can be entrepreneur, entrepreneur, or do your startup thing for the global AI you know, how, how do you evolve the offering around AI, right? Yeah. And, and so that is, a, you know, f based on NetLight as a company gives you kind of, I can understand how you can do, feel you, you're an entrepreneur, even if you have a context. And the process that we, or I go through as a um, senior NetLight uh, consultant, when I start talking to a client and find out what do they need, how can we help them? I, I staff usually I staff a team, like I get my colleagues together, I, I get experts on board. And this is kind of building like a startup, right? It's building a solution. And the great thing is that I have access to all these experts and uh, having a startup myself would probably not give me the same access to experience, experts in whatever I need right now. Have you ever been tempted to switch to a company that you have worked for and, and be a full-time employee there instead? Not really. I haven't found a company that has uh, given me anything better than I have, really. <laughs> Sounds great. Cool. Um, I, I think we should potentially switch over to a bit more societal type of topics, um, unless we have something more professionally. We could potentially speak a bit about, you know, given all the companies you have worked with and, and try to get them started on the digital journey in some ways. So let's go to generic topic. Let's go, let's leave net light. But I think with your experience, also how you're working on um, and what you have experienced in how you how NetLight is a quite different beast how it's organized. Um, do you you know going into data and AI, you know what? Well, how do you understand the core fundamental topics of succeeding with putting mm. data and AI? Oh, let, let's talk about this. What are the key fundamentals to, to have data and AI value creation at scale? That's a nice one. Oh, my. You know, is this a tech problem? Is it an organizational problem? Yeah. What is it? It's all, right? I mean, I think there is a, when I look at all the clients I've worked with, what kind of what boils down to is that there is some sort of maturity journey that you go through when when you evolve in that AI field or yeah, ML field. So the, I think the first step is usually to build some sort of technical infrastructure that you need. You need to have a, a database where you collect data. You, you usually start with some more simple um, things and you need to set up this tech stack. That's usually where, where people started. So five years ago, building data lakes was the big topic on, on in many clients, right? There wasn't really a clear, crisp use case. It was more this fuzzy idea of, oh, data lakes is probably what we should do because CEO likes the, the term. term. Uh, and, and But was that the right thing? No, it was not, of course. <laughs> but people have done it back then. Uh, and then the next step is actually the, the important step. And that's kind of adding the use cases on these data and, and, and establishing the, the value chain for for machine learning or AI or analytics, whatever so you want to do. Let's say something now, because we have, we have such a spectrum of how far people have come on this journey mm. in, in, in Nordics. So if someone who hasn't really touched the big data space yet, what do you advise them to start in, you know, the, all, all of us that worked on this in the enterprise mm. world in the last 10 years for NetLight, we kind of started in one end and everybody did it the same. 
If I take a step back now, I'm l- r- kind of skeptical to how how this came about. Exactly, it was not the. Not, so not if the you right now order. come to someone who is, you know, I'm a laggard. I I get it, but you know what? I want to hack the other guys. I want mm. to do it right from the beginning. What would you, you know, wh- where do you advise them? How how should they start? I mean, my advice is always to start um, very small small use cases, like pick a low hanging fruit, a very niche use case. Um, very where concrete. You, where you don't, yeah, very concrete, but also where you don't have to build like a gigantic infrastructure behind it to solve it. Right? And we, you have the data already. You don't need to go into data acquisition or something like that. So start with a use case that's easy to solve. It, it's a clear use case and, and define the business value as well. And, 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 and do this, you know, build the whole vertical, like the value chain from um, getting the data, analyzing the data, build some sort of product from the data and also um, make decisions for the business and, and measure back what you back what you actually built. I, 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 have, I have the same view in my last uh, uh, conference keynote. So you're talking about get a very, very clear framed use case that you can truly understand and clear problem to solve and then go narrow, but go the whole value chain to understand mm-hmm. from ideation to production. Definitely, yeah. And and there's actually a I think there is some sort of best practices how you do these you know proof of concepts, um, and and there also I think the clients I've seen became a bit more mature and, and became became also more mature in, in defining or structuring this process of building proof of concepts. Usually we, we want to start with um, some sort of um, use case um, scoping phase where we have a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks, where we just groom the use case and, and stress test the use case. And because I think often the ideas are quite vague, right? And it's not really, it sounds good in yeah. the beginning, but then when you start working on it, implementing it, it all breaks down. Okay, so this is another pet peeve rant from me, how we have done a problem framing in the business and we think we're done. Mm-hmm. But we haven't even, we are three or four layers away from a concrete problem enough with the real uh, metrics that you can have the right clarity on what you're actually trying to build. And I'm so jealous, by the way, when I we talk to the guys who has been at Spotify and where the, where the metric is super clear, what we're working towards. Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, like, this is my impression compared to how fluffy the business requirements are when they come in. And I, and I see it still, right? I don't, I'm not going to talk about customers, but Okay, so we're ready to start building now. And I'm like, no, there are like four layers left. Oh, but yeah. we, now we're done. No. So this fundamental advice to groom the problem or shape the problem. Groom the problem. And this grooming is really um, challenging yeah. if you have an organization where you have business and, and tech not working cross-functional because the grooming actually means on the one side, you need to groom the business metric and, and the business problem you want to solve but also you need to look into the data and understand do i have the data that i need to solve this and, and what is the data quality so it's a both technical and business uh, challenge iteration and yeah. then here now comes the cross-functional team very very early exactly the value chain needs to be you can't bring in the techie guys later or you know the, the cross-functional team in its core needs to be there in the grooming phase exactly it's the it's, it's the Flipping back and forth. Sorry, Henrich. I, I, I'm really passionate. You're on about your, I know. I can hear it. I'm so passionate, and you are spot on. I like it. Perhaps some terms 
we can speak about that one comes from Facebook and one actually, I think at least perhaps not originally into Spotify, but at least they spoke about it a lot. If we start with the Facebook motto, it is a move fast and break things. And if I just elaborate a bit more, you know, it's better to uh, put something in production quickly and it, uh, and also changes and iterations that you have on that product quickly, even though it may break things at some times rather than being, you know, too safe. Do you think that's a good metaphor to have or a motto or value to have? Or do you think that's being overused or too, you know, not used enough? Oh, I think this is super hard to, to make as a general statement. I, I guess if you run a nuclear plant, it's probably a bad idea. <laughs> well said. Or a surgeon, for example. Yeah. Let's move fast and close that heart up and see what happens. No. Yeah. What's no, it, it, I think this is a statement that comes from this this industry, right? Mm. Where, where it doesn't matter. Right? It's it's not a critical system in, for for anybody, and nobody is threatened by. But by if a I Facebook rephrase product. it, do you think tech companies, and not speaking nuclear plants or you know surgeons, um, but if we take uh, recommender systems or whatnot, um, do you think in general that companies are moving too safe, so to speak, or or being you know too careful in their planning rather than quickly trying something else? No, I think they are maybe sometimes going too deep, too fast, rather than going uh -huh. too broad, too fast. So I, I've seen these I'm cases too, where... Okay. What do you mean too deep versus too broad? Yeah, where you had like, um, you have hired a data science team mm. to uh, figure out super advanced uh, use cases mm -hmm. and, and like do these research projects. But in the end, it turned out they didn't really have uh, any impact on the business because yeah. nobody understood how to connect it back. Uh, and, and yeah, speaking recommender systems or, or search engines here as well, like you know, the algorithms that I've implemented in, in, in real life, they were not super advanced. Mm. And the problems that we fixed were super simple things that had a high impact. So there is kind of a diminishing return of investment. But couldn't you phrase that as moving, um, not moving fast um, and rather moving slow because you want to start with mm. a really advanced solution rather than starting with a simple one, mm. iterating, may yeah. breaking, but then tweaking. I think so iterating and measuring your impact, that's that needs to be part of moving fast, right? If you just move fast and don't measure... Mm. Move, probably move fast down the black hole, the, the wrong hole, right? Yeah, exactly. But but uh, what you have, I, I like a word in here: impact. Mm. So moving fast with impact, or trying to make sure that whatever we do has impact. I think that is a key word here. That somehow we get lost in happy engineering, or mm. I don't know what what to call it, but. Yeah, but, it, but, it's, it's often the organization, right? So it, I think there's, you asked for the, what are the components for successful or impactful mm. AI? And I think it's three components. One is the, the technical part that you need to have mm. good engineers to build something good, but you also need the, the right method, like the right analytical method or the knowledge of, of actually statistics. If you, for example, run an A-B test, it needs to have mm. a solid uh, statistical uh, base. But the third one uh, is then the decision-making and processes after you create the insights what do you do with it in the business and, and all of these three need to uh, play together yeah. but just to go back to what you said because i think actually that's one of what i've seen most common mistakes that companies do and that is to hire a data science team mm -hmm. alone yeah and they say okay you data scientist now 
try to figure this out. And they build a number of like prototypes to do something, but they have no way to actually put that in production and to provide a value. And they get stuck in what Patrick Ekemo usually speaks about, the prototype graveyard. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I agree. Because yeah. I think Completely. that's... And, and I think that's exactly what this moving fast and break things is really about. If you don't have the courage to actually put something in production and, and not only have data scientists that may not, some they may do, but, but most, I would argue, data scientists don't know how to put things in production so they can't break things because they only build something that can't be broken even. So, but if you do move fast and quickly put it in production, you test it out and it may break, but then you tweak it or throw it away. Mm. I think that's exactly what the move fast and break things are. Okay, yeah, then then I would probably subscribe to that. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, the the journey that I started describing earlier here, the maturity journey of a typical you know, AI company, it starts with a technical platform, then doing POCs to establish the the value chain. And the third step is then the um, the software or the the, the ML ops essentially, mm -hmm. right? So to make to streamline this, putting POCs into production. At scale, how do you do that? That's another beast of a problem to solve. And um, there it's a lot of you know, software how development. How big difference do you think it is to build a POC versus to do something in production? It's in a very different um, team that you need, a very yeah. different expertise you need. And how should you do that? Should you have a data science of building a prototype and then handing it over to engineers that develop it? Or how, how, what's the right way to... I'm asking it. I'm trying to avoid asking two leading questions, but <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. It was a bit leading. I don't know. Um, I mean, I think the, the current best practice seems to be um, uh, an organizational model, which is um, center of excellence, where you have um, a centralized team building um, a platform, like an ML platform, data platform, ML platform, that provides tooling to data scientists mm. who are working very close to the business. So should you start with that? I mean, in the first, imagine a company just saying, okay, we want to get started with data and AI. They, mm -hmm. they may want to have a center of excellence, but it takes a long time to build that yeah. up, right? And then they have the choice. I have five people to hire to do something. Um, what type of competences would you put in those five people? Yeah, but, but this is now like... I'm talking large organizations. You mentioned uh, at scale earlier, right? Yes. So and and it, you have you have you have three ways of working, three models here, organizational mm -hmm. models. One is the centralized. Mm -hmm. Second is the yes. uh, embedded, yes. and the third one is the the hybrid, the, the yes. hub and spoke or exactly. center of excellence model, oh, essentially. Yes. Exactly. And uh, and then there's, there's no right or wrong model. The but question is only where in the in your life are you as a company and if you're completely new and if you're completely the... new I would probably start with a centralized right. team Good. just because you have usually people who are new to the company the companies you you want to develop the, the competence the discipline the, 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 discipline, the function yeah. right so you need a tight communication there only five data scientists at that time or should it be also no you all <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm asking too many leading questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, but I think it's really good learning. And, and you're saying, I think, you know, like the, what we mean. In, in and reality. that is to, to also have a way to get started for companies, which is in the beginning, you need to start a centralized way. Otherwise, it will be, if it's a single person at different teams, they will never have the critical mass to do anything serious. 
Yeah, but you also need to make sure that you are very close to the business. And and usually how how we do it is in sort of a, a war room. It sounds a bit negative, but a, yeah. a, a room or like a temporary team, which is cross-functional, which has like the, the data science people, mm -hmm. but usually also the software developers who yes. actually would put that product yeah, into correct. the into the software, right? Or into the real, you know. Yep. product of the company and also the then the you know business stakeholder or whoever it is from the business who has who owns the use case or the business case yeah. so That's bringing those people together in the same room for a few weeks to solve a specific problem and then moving on breaking down this team and form a new team for a new use case yeah. this is kind of a model that works pretty well because you don't need to have a big reorg you don't need to yeah build borders or build walls in the company, but you still can put people together in a new way. But, but I, I think w one of the learnings uh, talking about this 2022, and then if we look back to the efforts when enterprises started to go into data science or whatever we want to call it, and it, I don't even need to go further down in five years. I mean, like the balancing of the team, like the whole idea of we need data scientists and now we will fix it. So we hired data scientists without the data engineers. And now in 2022, I would argue that the that we are hiring more data engineers and mm. than data scientists. And this is the right balance, by the way, even you know, because there's so much value and so much more work to be done. But this, I think, was completely lost in the whole hyped uh, first in the beginning. It was. beginning in It's interesting that many of my my NetLight colleagues uh, who work in, in ML, they would Many of them say, yeah, I do ML engineering, but not really ML mm. but because, because most of the work yes, is spent on actually engineering and mang uh, yeah. mingling the data, it's the plumbing, wrangling the data is called like getting, getting the, the technical, the plumbing. Yeah. And, 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 and we should not use plumbing as something derogative. No. I think it's beautiful. I think mm. it's the most important part of this whole thing. And, you know, but so many people don't understand that 90, plus 95% of the work to actually get something that works and get provides value is in outside of the model. Yes. It's more than data. It's more about all the system around it in the back end, in the front end, in the UX. And yeah, people, people a lot of companies are not understanding and, 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 this. In, in, in 2016, 17, the conversation was truly naive here. Mm -hmm. Truly naive. Oh, we got these data scientists. Oh, how, you know, how will they work? You know, where will you deploy the value? So, but I think here we, I think most people, I, I'm not sure though, we who have worked in the consulting or we who have tried it, you know, if I go to Scani or Vattenfall, but if you're a newbie, I'm not so sure everybody has understood the difference between data engineering, machine learning engineering, and advanced analytics. I don't think it's completely or AI yeah. and advanced mm. analytics, yeah. which is two different things, I would argue as well. Yes. The time is flying away. I, we promised to get back to one topic, which was the tech giants, the good, the bad, the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> good one. So Ooh, before we, you know, bias you too much, um, do you have any thoughts about, without saying, you know, what type of good or why they are good? Do you have like, if we name, let's say, five tech giants? And you try to rank them in terms of goodness or evilness or good, bad, and ugly. But he, you oh, need oh. to allow him to understand what uh, hat he has on or in, in what light uh, he's doing this. Let's start it without you know, giving okay. too much color. But is it about the product or is it uh, about... No, no. Don't, don't okay, go so, there. So the point is this. 
Okay, I frame okay. it now. Okay, so from good to evil, that that's all the framing you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. And then you know, let's have five names. Yeah. Now you need to then build up in like your idea of what is good and what you know. Okay. I mean, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna steer you, but from from good to evil. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think like spontaneously. Okay. Let, let, let's name five. Okay. okay. So Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. Good. That's the one. Yeah. Those are the ones. And just, you know, without thinking too much, what's the gut feeling? Which one is the, this is useful the, fun. the yeah. goodest one, <laughs> the most good company? Um, so actually, oh yeah, which one do you like? You know, is it good to evil or is it what you like and dislike? Is it kind of different? Yeah, uh, I, don't I know. think we said like and dislike. Yeah. Did we say good to evil really? I don't know. I don't know. Like and dislike them. Okay. Probably, like and dislike yeah, is well, maybe easier than good to evil. Sounds so, I don't know. Can you say the five again? I need to write them Google, down. Google, yeah. Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. And not in any priority order, by the way. Yeah, okay, but I, I need to find You should find the priority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, from like I to would, dislike. Put from Google, like to dislike. Google, Google liked most. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, followed by... Apple and Microsoft, mm. uh, Facebook, and then Amazon. And now you ask me why, right? Exactly. No, yeah. no, no. I, I must say first. Yeah, we, we, will, we will all do it. We will do it for fun. Okay. You you were almost correct. You were. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh Anders. Oh, I love it. We had this huge argument. Was it with Henry Langrian? Who, who did we have? This was so funny. <laughs> and we got sort of. And I, I would say only one error there, but otherwise... I no, I think it was okay. with Henrik Langren, and it was always provocative, and, you know, and everybody's trying to be... Anders is the best. He, no, he, he no, tries no, to come no. across as scientific and to be objective. <laughs> I, I also have put this really like, in my Obviously head. subjective, obviously very, you know... Complete, I have opinions. Yeah, yeah quite opinionated subjective, mm-hmm. but... but sells it like a scientist. <laughs> and then Henrik Langen just you know, took the crap out of you. I, I loved it. It was funny. Anyway. So what is the right order? No, no, no. no. There's no, okay. Now your order, not the right order, his order. Yeah. So the only wrong you got was Apple. Um, so I would put that. It's, it's a bit hard. I feel ashamed about Facebook. I, I don't think there are, I mean, they received so much shit and, and mm. especially Mark Zuckerberg. But um, yeah, I would just move Apple down one step. So Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Amazon would be my list. I think it's actually the correct order, yeah. And I'll tell you why in a bit. Ah, okay. So I need to look at it again. Let's see. Okay. Um, And I would put... I'm so colored now. I don't even have my own you have opinion. You the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. You go on. I, that, I, put, I put the ball on the penalty kicks, then you could kick it. No, but just for fun, I would put uh, Apple on top. Then I would put uh, Google. Then I would put Microsoft. Then I would put... Facebook and Amazon is hard. Yeah, I, I would actually put Facebook and then Amazon. Good. So the only company we're disagreeing about is um, is Apple. You know, where should their yeah. location be? Otherwise, we have the same order, it seems. 
you know why I uh, like my initial thought here was like I would value or like more companies that are a platform rather than forcing people into a certain product mm. and also value open source more than yes. closed gardens. Okay, so right? But then I, I dislike Facebook so much that I had to <laughs> rank it down. Uh, otherwise, Facebook would have been where you said uh, yeah. it was. Um, and, and Apple I put over Microsoft just because I like the products more Well, that, when okay. I work with it. Um, so you can say that's because you have bad taste. But sorry. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. So let me give a quick view of, of my thinking here. Apple, of course, makes awesome products. I think, I think no one can dispute that. They are awesome to use and, and really high quality. And I, I think also a really big advantage with Apple is that they do care about user privacy to an extent that yeah. True. I think oh, very few, if any, does in a higher extent. The problem with Apple, and, and I don't want to speak about the CEOs and anything, because I, I don't think that should be the, the reason. But that could be a reason, but I, I'm not speaking about that. Yeah, the main reason is that the contributions they make to open source and scientific community is horrible. And uh, it's also that they have a, such a tendency to... Locking in people is... I think all of them are locking in people. So I, I, even though they are doing it to an extreme that perhaps very few others by having special, you know, adapters and whatnot that works with nothing else and hard to, you know, convert. But so does Spotify and so, was, so does anyone else. So I think then the main reason I have, I put Apple a bit lower is because of their lack of open sourcing and giving back to community, both open source and, and scientifically. And that, of course, is Google Microsoft, Facebook doing much, much more. And especially yeah. Facebook, if we speak of the positive, we all know the negative sides of Facebook, but the positive sides is they have an awesome research uh, division with Jan de Kunder, that they are doing so many things. They are publishing much more open source and uh, with publications to a greater extent than Google in terms of how much they're open with. So if you look at, you know, translation models and whatnot, Google is not publishing the actual trained model. They're not publishing the code even sometimes. Sometimes they do. Facebook is doing that, but basically any kind of research they're doing. They have the code, you have the data sets, you have the model, and the papers, of course. And they are much more open in that sense in uh, giving back to the community uh, when it comes to open source and science. Microsoft is actually improving a lot here as well, I would argue. Especially their scientific you know, work is, is awesome, I must say. The product is not really keeping up with the scientific work, but it has, you know, since Satya Nadella took over, they are going, you know, they have been increasing in quality, I think, in extreme. And especially being back to open source, etc. Also outside of research, it's, it's awesome. So they are really improving a lot. Yeah, I can speak more. Amazon, of course, you know, they, the big thing with them is that they don't give back to open source. They even kill open source, I would argue, to a large extent, in taking open source product, doing awesome packaging, and then selling that to a very high price with a very good functionality, by the way, but not, they could, you know, easily give back some of all the awesome work they're doing to open source, but they choose not to. And also research-wise, of course, they, they provide so, little, but not much. So you are quite stringent in your analysis, and you, you, you're, this is what I joked. You, you're mm -hmm. taking, you're coming in from a quite, you know, from your passion and research or open source 
you know, and, and you, you open, afraid. I think openness is the openness. Yeah. And, and so basically this becomes your compass. So this is your main compass when you are contrasting these five companies. I mean, it's also product quality, et cetera, that I do bring in, I think. So, so let, so now it's my turn, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, um, I, I'm struggling because I have a couple of different tangents in my compass that competes. So, so my list is not coherent and logical fully. It's actually illogical to some degree. Um, so is mine, by the way. Yeah. So, so I, I put Apple on top and then, so this, how, how, now you will hear that I'm, I'm preaching for different things depending on who I put in what <laughs> corner. So completely illogical. So Apple, I, I, I do value their understanding and they value me and they don't exploit me as much as I like me as the product or the, my security and privacy is one thing yep. coupled then with what I think it's for me as a user who are not an engineer, a user experience that's tech software, what makes them locked down and, and integrated also makes for a, a good experience end to end. In my opinion, right from my Apple TV, and all that. And ultimately I am an Apple user, right? So I'm, I'm not, okay. So I'm, I'm not, okay. If I hardcore, what do I prefer to use? What do I like to use? I like my Apple stuff, period. Google tricky here, because on the one hand side, I don't, I really dislike that I, as a, as, as my private data is, I'm the cus, I'm the product. So from this perspective, I should put them lower down on the list, but then I, then I simply say, Fuck it. I like YouTube. I think they're going, doing great, great stuff. I think Google search is a awesome contribution to mankind. You know, and I'm not now talking open source and all that. No, I'm just talking about what, what is my, what am I using on a daily basis and what would really hurt me if I didn't have it. And I have now a car with where I have Google, Google drive fucking awesome. You know, you know, and, and I can Google think, Maps, right? And Google Maps, I talk to my car. I Go try on. to co- talk to Siri in my car. Screw that. This now I can this this I can talk to. Amazing stuff. Okay, this is why Google comes number two for me. Uh, so I'm sort of I'm I'm I'm, I'm like wow wow wow. The, I'm the product. Fuck it. Mm. I don't care. It's too good. And then I get to number three. What do I put on number three? Uh, Microsoft is for me the, the, the halfway in the middle. I have a hard time placing them. I don't think they're evil. I, uh, I don't know. They're, 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 they're somewhere in between, but I dislike then Facebook and Amazon more. So Microsoft for me is like, eh, in the middle. Yeah, I, you know, whilst I'm moving to negatives on, on Amazon and, and uh, Facebook. And, Facebook. and here, th- this is no logical because, you know, uh, Amazon has got, if, if you talk about AWS, great products and stuff like that. But, you know, if I start Facebook here, uh, for me, it's simply too much greed going on, too much funny stuff that's going on in, in a repetitive way. That's sort of where me, you know, the filter bubble conversation, all how much are we impacted by, by social networks? And, and all that, that's, I, I don't know if it's true, but I'm really concerned with it. And, and, and is, is, are they doing something that is worse than what, what, uh, Google is doing? I don't know. I really don't know. So this is very subjective. And, and then why Amazon comes at the bottom is that I think they are the ones that have shown 
most of all these companies, and maybe I'm just, this is not fair, but my perception is they have really shown a predatory behavior, both in terms of, you know, if I look at how they compete, if I look at how they are sort of not taking care of, you know, the, the, the minimum wage type situation that people are working on, you know, I, I think it's predatory in, in some yeah. ways. They, they, they are they are exploiting their power in a way, you know, that I think is the biggest. And this is completely subjective. And as you saw, my logic for why someone was on top and why someone was on the bottom was not a, a logical chain. But that's, so that was very subjective, my, my view. Mm. Fun discussion. Fun discussion, isn't it? We should um, yeah, need some more after after work discussions <laughs> on this. I think. I mean, it's, I think, someone will be really upset with us. Yes, that we, that we did, so we, this was very politically politically incorrect. Yes, and and, and, that and for the listeners, this well. was fun. Yeah. This was used for fun. Yeah, of course. So this is a very subjective topic. Of yeah, yeah, I don't know. We, we, you should probably not have done this, but yeah. <laughs> of course you can voice opinions. I think that's, that's uh, interesting. As long as you're clear, that's an opinion. This is a private not, opinion. Nothing yeah. Else. Anyway, um, I think we have to all agree that these five companies exert an enormous amount of power on our society today. And uh, that's a bit scary, actually. Yeah. But, and Saying that, they're also giving us a lot of comfort and benefits yeah. in our normal daily lives. I mean, yeah, otherwise we wouldn't use them. Otherwise we wouldn't use them, right? Yeah. But your I'm, a, I'm an optimist, yeah, yeah. But, but I agree that it's it's problematic. Yeah, and, and this, yeah, we talked about it earlier, the divide yeah. um, between like the corporate, corporate world and, and uh, academia or the the public sector is, is real and it's kind of... Getting, so yeah. I mean, that's a good closing topic, I think, potentially. Uh, you know, what do you think in five, ten years will happen? Do you think that, for one, data and AI will be more um, immersive or it will be used by everyone and, and that will, in that way, lower or increase the, the lower bar, so to speak, to which companies that can be a more of a tech company, mm -hmm. so to speak? Or do you think that they they will increase even more in speed? The, the, the big tech giants, so the gap will increase even more. Or, uh, but that could be still good potentially if they do it in the right way. It's just that as long as most of them are moving in the right direction, then mm. it could be good for society as a whole still, right? Or I'm, what's your thinking? Yeah, I'm an again, I'm an optimist, right? And and I believe, like, if we talk about innovation. I think it's not an option to not innovate. So we, we shouldn't, we can't stop it, right? Yeah. It cannot be stopped. It has yeah. to go out there. Yeah. And and I think the question is only what kind of policy framework do we build around innovation in order to make it good for society? And I think there, um, looking at Europe now, because I, I don't know as much about the US or like Asia, um, China, in in Europe, I think um, we are aware that we need policies and we need to increase the speed of of, of of political decisions to catch up. And we have taken the first steps. And I believe that if we if we go down that road and and create good policies, we can actually help smaller companies enter the market and we can steer what we do with AI and what we don't do with AI. I think Europe can be you know a role model. Uh, area in the world for for doing that, um, 
<clears throat> yeah. Do you have any idea? We have, we have done it for, I think we have done it for um, green, like sustainable technologies already. Yeah, right? And that given carbon. That is, is a very good example of, of uh, you know, uh, efforts to stimulate the German yeah. need in the given the yeah, that's exactly. a fantastic like example. The, the carbon um, taxation we have, I think that's, that's a policy that really works and we have shown that it can work and it can really impact a big industry. And I think the same can happen for, for AI. But, but what should we do more of? What are, you, what are you sort of missing or what do you think we need to focus on in this, you know, in our policy making or in our investments or how do you see it? What, what, what should we focus and do more of? Well, that, that's a tough question. I mean, in terms of what should we, I mean, to, in terms of use cases for AI. Uh, no, I was more, more, more thinking about this as, okay, if EU in some ways wants to stay on the right side or mm. can, uh, of the AI divide or sort of be, be a role model, I mean, like an, a relevant role mm -hmm. model, so to speak, uh, wh where do we need to invest or wh where should we put our emphasis or efforts? I mean, like we're working on the policy making and we are trying to be a role model in the most regulated, that, right. you know, someone can argue that slows us down. Maybe yeah. that's great. I don't, you know, AR okay. for good kind of thing. Then we have the investments. Do we have the VC? Why don't we have any hyperscalers? Mm. There, there's no hyperscalers in Europe. I mean, AI is like a general purpose technology, right? And, yeah. and, and probably we are a bit late if we want to become the the area in the world to to make the groundbreaking groundwork, so, so to speak, because that yeah. kind of is already uh, happening somewhere else uh, in a very hard, fast way. In small areas. Exactly. I think we can actually carve out like what are the strategic use cases that are important for society or like say like decarbonization or like the the, the electrical like the sustainable electricity sustainable energy these kind of topics could be a, a good use case to drill down uh, with, what with do you AI. think about some people say that europe may not be leading the latest you know research in ai but they could be the best in implying it. They could be the best in actually putting AI into societal good. Yeah, in certain areas, certainly. Yeah. Why not but in more? Why not in broad areas? I mean, no, but I probably also. But I mean, at some point, you need to decide. You cannot apply to everything. Like no. you have to, you have to see what makes sense for no, society. But, but compared to US and China, potentially. Mm. I, mean, I guess China is doing it quite well as yeah, well. Yeah, right? yeah, so they they have a good quite quite um, focused uh, and, and yeah. very well planned. Well, well, planned strategy what we are seeing now correlates quite a bit to Christian Gutmann, and we have and I've we have talked about this before that maybe if you look carefully, uh, I think Germany is a very good example here. You know, if you look at Europe and and what are the profile of our business in Europe. So we, ha we, we have a, an industry construct or we have industry clusters where we are very, very strong in engineering or manufacturing. And there, there is now a case, okay, someone tried to build a platform, you know, horizontally, you know, maybe we should do the kick-ass platform for a vertical. I mean, like, so we have all this about edge intelligence, manufacturing, you know, something that makes sense in our industrial mm -hmm. clusters, you know, as an example, right? If you need to be world-class and you want to 
support Stuttgart sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would that vertical, you know, what would that be? You don't need to do everything. There's some fundamental types of use cases or type of techniques that you need to be really, really good at. I mean, like Christian was something onto that as well. And I, and I think that's what you kind of alluded to also, if I'm Yeah, I think that's, that's what I mean. Like you, you, like if we believe as, um, as Europe that we need to face certain challenges like transforming the, the, the energy production to renewables. Yeah, that's one word. We also know that AI can play a central role in that. Then we can invest in that specifically, and that can then become the export. So stuff that we export to to other regions. Yeah, I think we could continue for a much longer time as well, and we probably will at least sometime more. But I think we need to um, find a close here as well. And um, for next, you know, can can perhaps you can speak about you know what's next in your life? What's happening in coming months? For you privately, professionally, something special going on? Yeah, I mean, special for me right now is to meet people in real life. Like being <laughs> here is just so fantastic. It feels like I have this whole list of people that I haven't met now for two years yeah, uh, during sure. COVID and, and want to meet again. So I will have a lot of uh, I have a lot of lunches uh, booked with people that I haven't met. Uh, also traveling uh, to right. to our other offices quite a bit nowadays. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. actually interesting counter counterintuitive fact that i thought that after covid we would travel less but actually i have now started so many collaborations with my colleagues in, in you know, germany other countries and now i want to see them and and meet all those people so i will actually travel a bit that's more why, nowadays that's why we have the longest waiting time for getting passports <laughs> i think it's exactly. really ever have you heard that after a year or something to just get the passport yeah. updated yeah. so that, that's happening for me uh, um, yeah Yeah, interesting. That sounds great. Anyone that you would recommend to come on this podcast, someone that you like to us having interrogated or you listening to that, um, yeah, you personally would interrogated. like. Interrogated. Interrogated, yeah. Uh, no, that conversation. <laughs> Anyone that you are interested in hearing more about? Uh, I have a fantastic colleague, uh, uh, industry colleague, uh, Christa Jakobson. Mm-hmm. He's um, fantastic. Kista Jakobson. Kista Jakobson. Um, yeah, has been working in the data science um, area for uh, oh. for a long time. Um, a very great mix of academia and and industry. Nice. Has worked at, at Toby. Worked with eye tracking or oh, computer nice. vision yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, research labs, but also in 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 the more academia in 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 Rice, the research institute yeah, of Sweden. Nice. So. He has great, great stories to tell. That you should great. meet him. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, and then uh, we talked a bit about ML ops or like is how do we scale yeah. uh, deploying those proof of concept we built into, into actual systems. And I have two fantastic colleagues uh, from NetLight in, in, in Germany yeah. who have worked with these you know, big German uh, clients and have seen these large scale systems and mm-hmm. come more from the engineering perspective, like ML engineering, yeah, data yeah. engineering. Uh, Michael Ludwig and um, Marco Kabelitz. So when they're here in Stockholm, uh, you should uh, you should get them here. Michael Ludwig and who? What is that? Uh, Marco Kabelitz. Oh, you have to spell it for me later. I can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and great. Um, that's uh, that's awesome. Great ideas. We should certainly try to to uh, bring them on. Mirko, it's been a true pleasure to have you here. 
Um, now we have some time to continue with it after after work. Um, but uh, thank you very much for coming. It's been a true pleasure. It was super fun. Thank you. Thank being... you very much, Nico. Thank you.